Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Ladies and gentlemen, all my friends, thank you so much for joining me again for the Kyle Serafin Show. Apparently, this is episode 26. It seems like just a few minutes ago, it was episode 25. And it was. So we're going to do this uh, kind of a special right on the heels of a Dan Bongino podcast. We're going to be following in the footsteps of my buddy who just got out of the, out of the hospital. And we are going to be bringing on a gentleman by the name of Chris Gonzalez. Uh, Chris came to my attention from a bunch of FBI whistleblowers who are quietly working in the backgrounds to protect your freedom and the American way of life. And they got an email, which went a little bit viral within the FBI, stating some of his concerns and why he was walking off the job, why he was leaving his job as an FBI agent, uh, something that some of us did voluntarily and some of us did not do so voluntarily. Um, this show is full of former FBI at this point. Producer Phil is joining me, and I'm going to bring on Chris Gonzalez, buddy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. Well, thank you for having me. I you know, you never think you'd be here, right? Had a career that I thought I'd retire from. And now here I am with a new, a new book, a uh, new chapter in my life. That's exactly it. And I was that was honestly where I was going to go immediately, which is that nobody thinks they're going to be sitting in front of a camera talking about a job they had to walk off for any of the reasons that you and I had to do it. Um, you know, I was actually summarily marched out. So it was Phil uh, kind of unexpectedly, but for reasons that we put our feet down on and uh, and you got to do it voluntarily, but I think for very similar reasons, a lot of the corruption and the uh, the rot. I want to give people a background on who you are, how you got here. Um, first, simple question: Is there any chance that you are related to Mike Lindell? People want to know. <laughs> no, but if I can get in on those pillow royalties, yes, I'll, I'll, I'm sure. Yes, for sure. It's uh, the my pillow seems like it's a pretty good gig right now. Um, people were were commenting on that. I I retweeted your your piece from Bongino, and uh, I had people like posting all these memes of uh, Mike Lindell, which cracked me up. I think it's just the mustache, but oh. it's close enough. The, the I almost said the mustache has carried me far. So I've always wanted a mustache. I finally grew it. I'm never shaving it. Like it took years to get it this far, and um, it's gotten me. It's gotten me far, but also into a lot of memes. I look like a French ice skater. Uh, I look like from He-Man, Sergeant at Arms, I yes. think was his name. Yes. So there's many Desperado because it never quite meet and it never meets in the middle. You know, I'll never get right. it to meet in the middle. Right. So I always have to. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for noticing. I I almost said I must ask you a question, but I, I tried to resist that. It's like it's hard to get that in when you're on the fly. <laughs> but, you know, I love it. I, I At least I have a mustache to make. My first attempt, my father-in-law put his hand on my shoulder and said, you know, it's not for everybody. So I had to oh, wait wow. about 10 years. Yeah. And, you know, it was set out of love and I, I appreciate it. But um, here we are, 42. I'm keeping it. It's the best I can do. Yeah. So when it's a feeble mustache, my buddy used to refer to it as the dirt squirrel. And <laughs> you have a full grown man stash, which is wonderful. Um you're not a small guy. I can just tell from looking at you, which is kind of the people that I thought I was working with in the FBI. Like they're not skinny jean wearing types. Um, you obviously you 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 know came out of the Alaskan field office out of, up in Anchorage. So I feel like you've probably chopped wood in your life. You you could actually justify wearing plaid, but that's not all of our colleagues, which is kind of funny. Um, actually, we can make fun of Steve Friend a little bit. Steve is super light. I would give him a hard time, but he can run so fast. He's in another county before I can uh, so kind true. of light him up. But it's so true. So it's. It's helpful when breaching, but when we would do the rural the hike, oh man, I was hurting. I was always hurting. You know, the light guys were moving ahead. So 
comes and goes. That's how it works. That is exactly how it works. Yeah. Heavy guys, great for carrying heavy things for short distances. Light guys, great for going uber long. All the studs that uh, that went through the special operations training I saw were all like skinny, wiry, ultra fast, mm -hmm. no mm -hmm. body fat, froze to death in the lake, whatever. Um, all right. Let's, let's get into it. You were a cop first. How old were you when you mm -hmm. went to the police department and did you go to college first or how did you get to I where we are here? You know, I went to Texas A&M right out of college. In fact, I'd been accepted to the Air Force Academy, and then I had a medical issue. They said, you know, you're not, you can't come. I said, what am I going to do? That's Once I got accepted to the Air Force Academy, I thought that was it. So right. I got my ducks back in a row, and I was fortunate enough to get picked up by Texas A&M. And I went to the Corps of Cadets there for two years. I was there when Bonfire fell. If you remember 1999 when Bonfire fell. I, I do. In fact, one of one of my friends lost his leg in that, John Comstock. Yeah, I know John Comstock. Uh, I was yeah. out there. We went. I lost a buddy in there from our outfit, and then we were out there pulling logs off after it collapsed. They wanted some bigger guys to help pull the logs off till we got all the bodies out. And um, what it that was what yeah, a, that was a catastrophic tragedy. situation. It was catastrophic. It was sad and unbelievable unprecedented it just you don't expect that your freshman year so i did that for two years and i was fortunate enough to meet my wife there the good lord put me in the right spot to meet the right woman and met my wife at texas a&m and then right out of college was a police officer in bryan texas and that's where i cut my teeth i learned from those guys i learned so much from those those uh those brothers in arms over there and Four years as two years as a poli uh, police officer on the street and then detective and SWAT. And I owe so much to that time there. I, you know, you really sure. get honed in. And so then this is from 20, there, 22 to 26. Oh, sure. Yeah. Th this was uh, 2004. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I was 2004. So I was like 23, 24 going into policing. So I'm now night. I left the bureau. I had 19 years in law enforcement, 14 in the bureau. Yep. So from there at 28, I went into the Department of Defense and I was with the Defense Criminal Investigative Service, which no one knows really when you go out and tell them you have a search warrant from the Department of Defense, Defense <laughs> Criminal Investigative Service, Office of the Inspector General. And they're like, so the FBI? I was like, sure, just, just fine. Whatever. Yeah, just, just give us the paperwork. But I was with them for a year. But I always wanted to get in the FBI. It was always in the back of my head. I was always working towards it, working on my master's towards it, working on getting my certified fraud examiner, just building my resume to be, you know, to be worthy of the FBI. That's that's how I looked at that's how I still do, but how I looked at the FBI. I wanted to be worthy to be called a special agent. It's and so, it's crazy because that used to be the Super Bowl of law enforcement to, to get to that. At least <clears throat> people thought it was, it was like, I'm getting too big for my britches here. I got to get to the biggest show. The FBI was the biggest show. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I'm sure when you were a kid, we grew up watching like yep. Mulder and Scully and, you know, and, and, and it was politic, you know, it wasn't politicized. It was just interesting. It was like, this is where the yeah, really this exciting, this is the top of the, the food chain for law enforcement. And yeah, yeah. I'm not hundred percent yeah. sure. I believe that anymore, but, but I've been at the Academy much more recently than you have. So I may have some, may have some sure. different uh, feelings because of that. You've obviously seen some of the, our colleagues coming out and, and, uh, and maybe had some questions. So, okay. So you're, you're, uh, where were you doing the, uh, defense criminal investigative service work? Texas. Again, I was in Arlington, Texas. They have an office there and I was only there for a year. Uh, during that year, I was in the application process with the FBI and okay. how long, how long was your application? About a year. 
Okay. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it wasn't too bad for me. Uh, I was fortunate. I had a. I was already a special agent. I will tell you uh, one one view behind the curtain. I had gone to the FBI office on a Monday as a DCIS special agent, but on a Tuesday I had to go there as a recruit or uh, as an applicant. And right. so the next day I show back up and they're like, "Okay, take your phone off, take your take your knife out of your pocket." And I was like, "You, I was here yesterday. That's that's fine. You know, you're fine. I totally get it." But it was so funny to see um, how by the rules. You know, it was one just one day I was one person, the next day I was a different person. But I went there, went through for a year, and then got the letter. And you know what that feels like. You you are so right. Let's fast forward. I went to the academy, and we can talk about that, but I went to the academy in 09. I was okay. class of 09-12. And get out of the academy, and we're having dinner. My family flew up. You know, my aunts and uncles flew up. My wife and I are there. And I said, this is like the Olympics for me, right? This is as big and as good as I'm going to get. That was mm -hmm. the FBI. And so I say that because I want people to understand that I, I held and I still love the FBI. And I want it to do well. Like I still have colleagues there that I, I want the entity to do well, but we have problems. I, I wouldn't have walked away from something I held in such high regard. It's not like I hated my time there. I, I did everything I could to get there. Right. Uh, and, I think it's worth, and, I think it's really important that people understand that sort of thing because mm -hmm. yeah, it's, and what I always, I told somebody when you leave and you, and you're not there and you feel bad about it, it's not because, you know, some stranger did something that you don't agree with. It's because something mm -hmm. that you, you know, you trusted betrays you. And it's, it's mm -hmm. left its own, it portrayed itself. I mean, the FBI has betrayed itself. I think that's, that's the way yeah. that it looks and that's the way that it feels. And so betrayal always feels like someone stabbed you in the back. You know, it doesn't have to be a physical stab, but, mm -hmm. um, and particularly someone who's, you know, I, I was in the military, you were a police officer beforehand. You, you believe mm -hmm. in the concept, you believe in the, uh, the idea behind it. And then, you know, now you're at the spot where you go, would they do the right thing? We had a fun discussion earlier today about whether or not the FBI scrubbed your letter from the servers. And your comment was, you know, the fact that we can have that discussion and wonder if it's true is the problem. I mean, mm -hmm. because it's plausible yeah. at this point. Like that's that's the way that we're looking down the, the barrel of this uh of this agency. Well, that's that's one of the things I've talked about, the difference, the dichotomy between, or let me say the juxtaposition between corruption and this choking bureaucracy is that corruption naturally and properly um, destroys the public's trust and even the personnel within the group's trust in the entity. Yep. But bureaucracy is much more insidious because it doesn't seem evil on its face. It, it's like a choking vine uh, yep. that people just accept because it seems okay. Uh, I don't want to flash, flash forward too much to that but that that's the difference in the problems here is i wasn't around somebody who was corrupt and they were you know helping some legal somebody legally they shouldn't have been or hiding evidence it was this bureaucracy and and yes. that was the choking smoke that i thought was killing our office uh, morale and at a macro level the 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 bureau's ability to do its job so 
one of the things that I've been talking about to to people is that the FBI is not a monolith, not by any means. It Absolutely. is a it is a bunch of small fiefdoms run by a bunch of little princes, and mm-hmm. those princes are more and more jumping in line to to get uh, ideologically balanced with the the DC mm-hmm. power structure. But that didn't always used to be the case, and that's probably been less and less the case. You were as far out on the reaches as it goes. So maybe walk us through your your field office progression, how you ended up in uh, in Alaska, which is really as far away from headquarters as any human being could be, unless you're a league at. Um, so tell people how you got there, where you, where your first office was, and how you got assigned. Great. Uh, thank you very much. I went in 2009, went to the academy, then I filled out my dream sheet. And so my wife and I were filling out that sheet of 56 different offices, trying to put them in order. And she said, okay, what do we mean? What is like, what does this mean? What are our chances? And I said, it's still a monkey throwing a dart. Like I, I could turn this sheet in or, or turn in a blank piece of paper. I don't know what'll happen. And we got, we get, we Tell do people the order. About the darts though. The people got to understand that this is an ongoing yeah. thing at the Academy is obviously when you were there, Phil, was that the same story when you were there? Yep, Drunk monkeys throwing a, a dart at the board? Pretty much. Um, that's what it, it is. It, like, it's just, it's just so funny because they had, at one time they were doing one through 56 field, you know, for all the field offices there are, you would rank those. And then they did regions, but regions are really funny because let's imagine the whole West coast is a pretty huge region. So right. somebody could somebody could say, oh, I really want to live in Arizona, but Alaska's also on the West Coast and they get Alaska or yes. vice versa, right? Yes. You know, so you you just do the best you can and then you have orders night. And for those who don't know, orders night, if they still have, it was a really big night because everybody got to go up in front of your classmates, hold your letter. Uh, you could guess kind of like Karnak, you know, you'd hold your... I think it's uh, Alaska. And then you'd open up and find out what you got. Right. And it's still like that. As far as I know, is it, it, it was, it was a great time. And then the person who got the lowest on their list, uh, I, they all put a, you know, some money in a kitty for them and yep. they got to, yep. they got to get some money for beers. Yeah. They got like a $200 or $500. Like, sorry that you're <laughs> yeah. going to, sorry, you know, sorry, sorry you, you're going hey, to San Juan. That's right. So I got San Antonio and I was super excited. I got San Antonio and I was going to work counterterrorism. Uh, at the time, they also told you your career track. So I remember calling my wife and I said, we got San Antonio. And I grew, I was born in San Antonio. I was raised in the hill country right outside there. Uh, yep. My wife was living in uh, Fort Worth before she went to Texas A&M. So we knew Texas. And so she said, that's great. Where? And I said, well, technically San Antonio is the big one. We could be at the border or in Waco. Yes. And that's a very different living situation. But it we, it's huge. It's huge. And so eventually you find out, hey, we're going to San Antonio proper. Headquarters city, uh, as we call headquarters it. Headquarters city, which was great because I knew that, I didn't know that at the time, but it ends up being easier to be on SWAT and being easier to be, which is really the, the you know, the it's the best. SWAT's it's got all the, the, well, so yeah, there, it's funny. There's two pieces of that. It gives you access to all the things, but you're closest to the power structure. So you still got a flagpole next to you. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. We, I work counterterrorism and the SAC's office was right across the hall. And so if he didn't, if you weren't wearing a suit or if you weren't, you in know, Texas. he'd come by and yeah, in Texas. And That's if so you wear bad. a suit, and it's swelteringly hot. And I remember this SAC said, we need to look like, you know, they, they expect us to look in the movies. And I, so then I'm wearing a suit, but then my tire went flat. And I'm way out somewhere, so now i got to change this tire in a suit. And you, If you've ever changed a tire in a suit, you look ridiculous because you're trying to hold it so far away from yourself so you don't get dirty or tear 
the two suits I own, the ones right. for court and you know, ones for funerals and weddings. That's so that's right. <laughs> so bad. So this is interesting. I didn't know this before we started talking, but I was actually stationed in San Antonio at um, Lackland Air Force Base in 09. Oh, and wow. and I was there 09 and 2010 and part of 11. So I was going through, you know, the same heat and the same cold, uh, which yes. we had a pretty cold winter in um, in 2011, which people won't remember, but they actually shut the city down a couple of times. Yes. And yeah. it iced over pretty good. And I was out swimming in a freaking lake um, somewhere, some undisclosed location. But uh, so we had that overlap there, which is funny. It makes sense That's that funny. you're a Texas guy. That's um, yes. There's, there's a lot of good stock in the FBI, and that's what I think that is worth noting. There's good people that very are good. honorable people, and it doesn't take very much of it to corrode um, and really bring yeah. out that smoke, that choking vine like you're talking about. So, okay, so you got to do SWAT. You said that's the best. Tell me why SWAT is the best. I I always, oh, I always looked at SWAT very suspiciously. Uh, you know, for all that's wrong in the Bureau... And in different places and at the field office, remember my SWAT buddies here in the Anchorage field office, they said, aren't you going to miss this? It was Wednesdays, right? Aren't you going to miss Wednesday training and the ops? I said, yes, it's the Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays that are killing me. (laughs) And uh, I remember telling folks that unfortunately, you know, I would come into the office and for a while there, my chest was starting to get tight. Mm -hmm. I, I was so upset. Um, I said, I felt so, I felt like the work I was doing wasn't valued. I felt, I, I, I eventually said to myself, you don't want Chris Gonzalez. You don't want me. You don't right. want my ideas. You want me to say yes. And I can't do that anymore. And so this is far, of course, this is what, this is, you know, a few months ago, but then to say, um, to, to have that feeling of dread whereas in SWAT oh man I, I woke up I've always loved SWAT you know and you can tell somebody in SWAT stop being stupid and you're still best friends and you call each other out and you get better and you get sharper and you get to break stuff and smash stuff and shoot things and go to breakfast and you know your buddy's got your back right maybe yeah and all, the, if, all those things you just described are being part of a team which is what I thought the bureau was and but it's I don't, not. I don't yeah, believe the bigger not. bureau is. But there, well, are, when small, I up the, there are small tribes. Yeah, there are small tribes. And you talk about folks who have been at CERG, right? They talk about like, oh, things are pretty good. But they know that they're in a uh, enclave. They're in a small um, cave there yes, where they, they So CERG, for are people that don't around. know, CERG, yeah, CERG is our tactical unit. That's where the hostage rescue team is, the sort of tier one counterterrorism team in the country mm-hmm. and and they do have a pretty good gig they've got sweet facilities they got dudes with helicopters they can fly around and do fun stuff you know they've got every toy you can imagine they've got if you want it they've got boxes of it they didn't even know they had boxes until you asked them well wh- so there's a guy that i went and did a shooting training with his name is uh, scott jelinski he goes by jedi and he uses this um climbing stuff from petzl it's a liquid chalk you ever seen that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I've apparently he was he was using this. It's a thing that he uses on his competitive shooting, and he was teaching HRT. And he was like, you know, I use this, you know, bottle of chalk. And the guys were like, oh, no kidding, we've got like cases of that. And they went back, and there was like a, like a mountain of cases of them. Um, sure. And they're like, here, here's a couple. And they gave him a few. And he was like, these chintzy bastards. Like they wouldn't even give me a, like a case of it. And they had dozens. But like whatever you want, it's at uh, at Serg, aka Hostage Rescue. They've got all the, they've got all the fun stuff. So well, and that I is love, a small I- tribe. 
it is a small tribe and they are often i mean the folks who get into that system into that group are mission-minded sacrificial-minded yes. team-minded team first and so and, and i think a lot of them know that and they come out looking for that else out in the bureau but the bureau is not like that the bureau hires and i noticed this when i first came on i came on looking for my of course you think of Mulder and scully right this this team yeah who's and your that's partner not what, right who's my partner in this and that's not what the bureau has the bureau has a bunch of they want you to be a sole mission man like case manager and you manage your cases and you sit in a pod of other people all managing their cases. And that's the way it was on CT. Now, violent crime, counterterrorism, violent crime, I have seen them work much more closely. Right. But I worked counterterrorism and it was, I just was kind of expecting we were all working our cases together and we were a team, but no, you're not really, you're, 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 you work your cases and, and you manage the resources and assets that go into that. And then if, if there's an op or a search warrant, we all kind of come together and then we all go back. But right. you're not, you know, in the car together. This, I think some of the ideas we have from the movies, which even, I don't know if they infected me, but they affected me, right? I came yes. in expecting one thing and it was a little jarring at the beginning, uh, trying to, trying to do that solo, right? Even though I'm sitting right next to somebody, I, I feel like I'm solo. Yeah. And, and. I feel like the bureau is really bad about institutional knowledge transfer. I don't know if that was something you experienced as well, but Man. it's like there, like we have Rico statutes. We have people that have been crushing the mob since the seventies, like going after like legit La Cosa Nostra bad guys in New York. And nobody has ever done a Rico case in your office. And if you want to do it, you're on your own to figure it out. You're They're not going to send somebody from New York. Who's an expert. They're not going to send somebody from the United States attorney's office in the Southern district of New York to come be a prosecutor for you. They're going to leave you out there and you're going to half-ass it. And you're you're going to try to figure it out on your own. And it blew my mind. It's like, didn't we have people that know how to do this stuff? Like, why don't we, so why don't we share some let, knowledge? Let me tell you about that. I started a project uh, at this field office for just that reason. It was a project called, how do I? And so the, how do I folder was my, my overarching goal was to create a FBI wide. How do I folder? And let's say you're like, I got to do this Rico case. And you open up the folder and you just, at the top, you typed Rico. It went to a folder called Rico. It gave you all the statutes. It gave you the ponies. It told you, and I was going to type a Word document out for each section that said, you. it said, so you got a Rico case. Here's what you do. And I was going to do it for, for every type of case. And so I started getting all the ponies together. We had probably, you know, over a hundred folders. I put it all together. Um, at ASAC at the time was kind of like, where did you come up with this? How, this is like, this is great. Totally championed it. And I tried to move it forward and a, uh, the high level admin, uh, uh, person at our office. And I think the executive management said, well, whoa, this needs to all correspond with the dialogue and every, every folder needs every pony and everything in here needs to be corresponding with the domestic intelligence or investigations operations guideline dialogue and until we do that we can't move forward and i said but you don't have a dialogue statute for best practices when doing a buy bust you don't have a dialogue statute for for uh, you know how to 
for the the soft skills in doing human source recruitment. That that's not part of the dialogue. I I can't no, get that the, for you. The dialogue is the limits and the and it tells you what you can and can't do, but it doesn't tell you how to do. I can't believe they didn't fire you on the spot for having a great idea because that's a fantastic idea. It's something that yeah. I wish that it existed when I showed up and you guys didn't see it. But when Phil started saying, when you started mentioning executive management, there was a, a dramatic eye roll on Phil's uh, camera because <laughs> it because we just know that that can't go forward because. Um, the bureau is a victim mm -hmm. of its own, you know, legendary status in its own mind so often. And it's like, you know, we've never done that. That's why we serve warrants at 6 a.m. You know, it's like, why why do we serve them at 6 a.m.? Because we've always done it at 6 a.m. It's like, well, that's a bad idea. That's a really bad idea. It's probably the most dangerous thing you can go do is go and try and enter the room in the dark with an unknown subject in their own space. Do you know where I like to grab people? Because I, I was on a surveillance team. I like to grab people mm -hmm. when they're pumping gas. If we're going to go do mm -hmm. something, imagine two guys block your car in, they jump out and they just let you know, hey, you're coming with us. There's nowhere to go. You're not near your vehicle. Yeah. You're out there pumping Open gas. Air assault. Mm -hmm. It's super easy and there's nowhere to go. And like everybody else is safer for it. And they're awful. You know, who's paying attention to someone sneaking up on you when you're pumping gas? Mm -hmm. Me well, uh, and now you and now all my listeners. But like nobody else <laughs> is like, you're just not looking around going like, hey, who's coming for me? That's right. Luckily in Alaska at six o'clock in the summer, it's sunshine that's, at 11 o'clock at night. It's sunshine at two in the morning. It's sunshine, but it's so, bizarre. you know, the, uh, the, how do I folder? It, it really, it, I, I think it kind of crushed me a little bit personally because it has to. I, I said here, when I, I was at the director of intelligence, you were asking me a little bit about my career. I'm going to go back there real quick. So yeah, in 09 right. to 2015, I worked counterterrorism and, uh, there was a lot of good agents that took me under their wing. Um, we had, had a really rough time with my first supervisor. Very rough time. We just just didn't seem to see eye to eye on things. And I think part of it was me being a little bit cocky. I, I think about, I can't, you know, I've, I've been in law enforcement. I know this. I can do this. And then you run into the FBI and you realize part of the thing is it's not the investigations. It's not go find information. That's not the hard part. It's learning the bureau. It's learning right. the different, how do I talk to the CDC and when do I bring this up to my SSA? And does this, should should the ASAC know about this before I do it or after I do it? And so I don't get anybody in trouble, but I also don't need unnecessary obstacles. This That's what makes you a, a GS-13 is yes. knowing yeah, how when to bother to avoid, somebody and when not to. Right, and when not to, and when to ask for forgiveness and when to ask for permission. And that's what makes you a senior agent is you're able to navigate those minefields. And unfortunately, golly, I keep going into these, these little rabbit trails, but I felt like so often I was fighting more internally than I was externally. Yeah, so sure. so much of my energy was focused on managing executive managing up and managing mm -hmm. executive management and and not i didn't feel like when i went in there that was the trust tree right the safety nest where i could be like what do i do here when i no, walked in and i said what do i do they're like you don't know and then now you're afraid what's to funny is that they probably don't know either what we know now <laughs> like having been around them right because they just don't like you're just thinking yeah. like like this person probably did cases for three years they barely got competent enough to leave they went to headquarters for six and then they went in and they popped out as an asac somewhere and you're going like 
Mm, so true. I think that I have as much experience as you do. Um, yeah, there's no doubt that so that true. is the problem, right? Like they're 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 masking their own ignorance, and you're exposing it to them, which makes you a threat, makes you a problem, and all the things that you know you don't know that at the time, but then you realize afterwards is like they're faking it hard. A lot of them are, and they don't I, want to be exposed. And there were some. They do not. There the the term I've used is the emperor has no clothes, and they don't want to hear it. You know, in SWAT, you 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 can't fake things, um, and. Heaven knows I've I've tried, right? We we were doing some technique and they they said the technique name and I said, you got it. And then they did it and I had no idea what I, I had no idea what it was. I just went in the room and they were like, yeah. why did you say you got it? And I was like, I don't know. I just uh I just figured I'd go with bravado and then uh, yeah. figure down the other yeah, side. Bravado and ego are a good way to get yourself hurt in that sort of <laughs> I said, in, a, in, in an it's operational exactly right. It's exactly right. And so they called me out on it and they taught me what it was. Hey, fix yourself. Learn this. Okay, great. That doesn't happen in the in the management scale, right? That this doesn't happen there, and it, it's unfortunate that we can't have these candid conversations. That you, as a manager, you know, as a program manager. Well, I go from counterterrorism investigations uh, in San Antonio. I was selected to go as a program manager supervisory special agent uh at the directorate of intelligence Yeesh. uh was this which, an 18 month this was an 18 month and i always knew i was going to do it i mostly because i i told my wife financially we have because i was going in when you could still keep the pay right can i, I can we like, can we can we go down that rabbit hole just a little bit i think it'll be fascinating to people people don't yeah. understand one how how little we get paid at the beginning because i don't think it's like it's not a huge amount of money but how vastly that changes and then that 18 month tdy will you just financially break it down for people to, when you say financially you'd be a fool not to take that tdy which people just so you aware they don't do this anymore this was a deal that was the only way they could get people like chris to go to headquarters mm -hmm. probably like phil yeah. as well you couldn't get people to go do these these jobs and you can't because now and you can't get them now because they're miserable. They're absolutely miserable. They are atrocious. There's a reason why I always call the Hoover building the Death Star. Like it's where dreams go to die. And unless you're just yes. the kind of person that wants to just serve Darth Vader, then you just want to be there. And so, okay, so you're yeah. you're a GS. Were you a GS thirteen when you went? I I had become a GS thirteen after five years, and that's now when you're starting to make, you know, just over. Just at a hundred thousand, I think. If you're talking, yeah, it's up to about 119 right now for a okay, GS 13 one. So that that's changed over the last couple of years, obviously. But um, because because of inflation, is our money is still worth less. But we we get more money. That's um, right. Uh, so you start off at about like sixty five thousand. Does that sound about right? Sixty five, maybe sixty eight thousand. Yeah, yeah, right. I think is your base, and then you depends on your locality, and then your AVP. Right. Which I feel so bad if if people aren't aware of. When I went to San Antonio, that's one of the cheapest costs of living that there is. It's it's a wonderful place to live because you can really afford it. But the agents that go to San Francisco and New York, all being paid on the same scale, uh, they have to live. Uh, there's a lot of agents that live together or they live yeah. an hour and a half to two hours away from their office, like New York City, San Francisco. They just can't afford to live in a reasonable we had, uh, range. 
Yeah, we had Steve Friend on uh, last week, and he was talking about how he had to live 60 miles away from New York City, which is atrocious in New York traffic. But that was the only way he could live. And obviously, he got out and he did 20, 22 years or so. So you go back long enough, but it still hasn't caught up. And so there are places where no. you're not making enough money to get by. And then there's other places where you're doing pretty good. Like I I, I made 120000 when I was leaving uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is definitely in the upper echelon of salaries in that area. And I was oh, happy sure. to have it. But the minute that you don't have it anymore, you, you can only live in that area so long because you you know, you know go buy a nice house and it's not a nice mm-hmm. place necessarily. So you go get your family set up nicely. It doesn't work really well. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, when you leave. So, exactly. Like when you're, when you're unceremoniously frog marched out or whatever it was. So you, you went from GS 13 in San Antonio, making a decent yeah. living. And Make then you went, li- and, yeah. And then you went and did the director of intelligence, which just sounds like my nightmare. <laughs> you know, I am uh, I am a nerd as well. I think we talked about this. And I, I do love innovating, creating, trying to reinvigorate like this. How do I folder? I had that same sort of mentality going into the director of intelligence. I knew that there were some people who warned me a little bit about it, uh, that, you know, the director of intelligence has some problems and its organization it's it's the youngest i think of the directorates and it's had it hasn't had a steady parent so it's kind of like um an orphan that's been neglected and it just hasn't had the time because goodness gracious i go there in 2015 as an ssa i am very thankful to the um unit chief that hired me it it was a, at the time it was a life-changing opportunity because I knew that that time there accelerated my time in the bureau pay-wise. So the two years I did there, the two years and two weeks I did at the Directorate of Intelligence when I left was effectively 10 years, nine, it was eight to 10 years of time in the bureau as a regular field agent because I got to keep that pay. Um, I left, so that, I came so that out- that bumped you up to a 14-1, right? And maybe even a 14-2 when you left. I was yes. actually, I was a 14-1, and then the second year I was a 14-2, and then be, this is, if any if any agents are hearing this and they're permanent at headquarters, here's a little secret. I did two weeks in the pay period the third year. So I was a 14-3, and I took um, five extra days of like le- to time to come from uh, Virginia to Alaska. So when I arrived, I was a 14-3. My next pay period started after I'd been in a full pay period as a 14-3, which meant that when I stepped down, I stepped down from a 14-3 down to a 13-10. So I was which as basically, high as, yeah, maxes it out for, for I was I was a, the most senior agent pay you could, which was only a 5,000 approximate dollar difference between that and the ASAC. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things I talk about in my letter is that there's very little financial incentive for an agent, good agents to promote. Now, a lot of people will say, well, you should promote for other, you know, um, uh, other reasons. I was trying to think of the word, uh, but for to, to help, all right, that you should want to help. You should be mission minded and, and sacrificial. Well, you a lot of those really good agents that are really good at their cases realize that at the minute they get in that pipeline they're they're probably helping less um because in order to get into that pipeline in order to get into that mold you're going to have to sacrifice not so much not not only your family in in time and time away but you're gonna have to say yes you're gonna have to 
capitulate when you don't want to, or right. or you won't go far. I said on the uh, Dan Bongino show, I got the stick versus the carrot a lot because I said, I said no, I said that's not right or that's incorrect, right. sir. And I was I tried to be as polite as I could. I tried to be as so, polite as I could. Good. Uh, Phil once told me that a, an FBI GS-15 is someone that's never said no to a bad idea. How do you feel like that plays out? Oh, it's a terrible, it's pithy, but it's true, right? Oh, uh, I, and, and I feel for them. I feel for them. I was removed as a, um, as a SSA. I was the acting SSA and I was removed from that position. And the ASAC at the time told me, that he 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 tried to really be nice about it, and he we talked about well you have some late files the squad has some late files which everybody that's has some a, late files I said right. oh we can we can correct that and then, well you have a, a lot of these other assessments that need to be done I said oh well I was giving ideas and then I, then I realized this this isn't about that uh, and no. it wasn't and the the person was actually protecting me I I didn't realize at the at the time I was very upset. But they said to me, listen, this is my decision. Because being a good ASAC, they wanted to say, you know, it's my decision. And I said, this is as much your decision as when the king tells his servant to go execute somebody and they get to choose the way they do it. I mean, yes, I guess it's your decision, but there's no going back from this. If it was your decision, you could decide not to. Correct. That's when it's your decision. You were just doing, you were doing what... You had to do now. Well, golly, I guess the cats are all out of the bag, right? Because I've I've left. But the thing was, um, I said something to an SAC, a special agent in charge of the office, and from my understanding, he wanted me not only removed from the SWAT team, but removed from the field office, and he wanted to make an example of me. And that wasn't the only time the phrase "make an example of an agent" has been used by that SAC. That yep. is Looney Tunes. I, I don't know how else to say how terrible that was. Uh, and let me tell you, sir, I am not, I am a joker for sure. Um, I am, I, I do talk too much, but I am not disrespectful to the point that yep. that should occur. I am, but, but, this you, person, but you stepped on, you stepped on their hurt little feelings and they're small people mm -hmm. that get promoted in those roles. They're mm -hmm. not big people. They're not magnanimous people who have an excellent understanding of leadership that are not going to make it. They're not going to make it as a peer leader somewhere. They're not going to get voted in by their peers to take the reins. They're mm -hmm. the people that choose to be in charge, which is the least likely person to be good at management is what I've always found. If you self-select for management, you're probably rotten. The only people I like working for are the ones who take it sort of like, uh, you know, they take it mm -hmm. like Rico from uh, from Starship Troopers. He says, I'll do it until you, you know, until I'm dead or someone better comes along. Like, that's kind of the way I always mm -hmm. felt about leadership. That's how it's done. You don't choose it. You just do it because it needs to be done. And I can imagine that your yeah. SAC was probably like every SAC that I've seen with very, very few exceptions. And the good ones, for some reason, they get squirreled away in little pockets where they can't bother the rest of the crew who are all like the, your former SAC. Yeah, I was... I was, I, to go back a little bit at the director of intelligence, I came in and I said, Hey, here are some big problems and I'm going to give you solutions, right? If don't identify a problem without coming up with a solution, here's a solution. Amen. 
Here's a five to 10 year plan on how I feel we can reinvent, revamp the directive of intelligence. I'm committed to doing this. I think one of the first things we do is get agent buy-in uh, into human intelligence and into the intelligence plan. And then we need to help marry and get a better understanding between Intel uh, as the Intel analysts understand it and Intel as the agents understand it. And we really need to find out is what we're doing in the Intel sector benefiting the operations or are we merely making paper to make paper? I said, we need to revamp the intelligence operations guideline. Let's start by reading that. And so I presented this and the executive management <laughs> said- I just, because that's, that's that's all the problems right there. You just highlighted all the problems that existed. Obviously they're still yeah. there. So I can only guess how well this went yeah. over. Yeah. yeah, like a lead balloon. Uh, <laughs> so good. Essentially it was, what can you get me in six months? And I said, a white paper that says this? I said, essentially I can get you in six months I can write you down these problems formally. And I didn't understand why was six months so important because they have to promote. They got they they need something in six months so that in at a year they can write it to the paper so that in 18 months they're ready to promote. And you got so this is the GS15, this is your unit chief and above, but just say that again slowly for people to understand. Cause I do think this you're calling it bureaucracy. I actually think that's petty corruption. Um it's sure. about money. It's about uh, you know achieving status, which is about money. Self, it's about adding to your high promotion, right? Yeah. But all those things; those are the problems. That is the evil that besets the FBI, and it's it's so simple. It's it's not like a cabal of cigar smoking men doing the cancer man routine. You know, they're not sitting in a dark room in overcoats. Mm -hmm. They're literally just going, "I need to promote. What are you going to do for me in the next few months so that I can put it on my nine fifty four, my promotional yeah. document that shows what I've done?" So yeah, say. This person needed to see what you had from your, this is your first week, it sounded like, or first couple of weeks. You know, it, it was the, the what I tried to take into it, and I, I went in those months and I said, learn, learn the program, learn the issues, how can I help, uh, then create a solution. And yes. if there's no problem, don't create a solution, right? I don't need to change something that works. Uh, like in, in the criminal investigative directorate, the division, they have a lot of programs that work real well. And so mm -hmm. their program managers come in and they help the field and they just call and they say, what do you need? How can I get it to you? Do, do a good job. Stay safe. Vaya con Dios. And what a yeah. great program to be in. But the director of intelligence, I felt, was in need of some uh, analysis uh, and some life brought back into it. And, and I believed in the value of intelligence. I just felt like we were, we were mismarketing it. I thought we could do some logo and branding uh and we could do because i said we we are serving these people the people in the field are those that we serve they, they are not there for no no <laughs> no they don't tell, pe um, tell people what the responsibilities are of the director of intelligence i think that actually would help um get a grasp of some of the things we're talking about i know what you're talking about i just break down kind sure. of the mission set and and what are they responsible for and when we talk about you know they think that you think that they should be serving the field that the field is their customer which i agree mm -hmm. with but they think that the, the field is really bringing them it's their supplier and it's the field's yeah. job to bring them what they want that they should be tasking the field and setting operations so what what are the, right. the the full you know programs that fall underneath that directorate? Well, you, you know, within the directorate of intelligence, we have intel collection platforms, and so we have human intelligence. And I, I don't think any of this would be. I mean, I don't think any of this would be um, close hold, right? We have human intelligence that we work right. within the bureau. We have intelligence analysts. Uh, obviously, the bureau 
gains uh, foreign intelligence for from for certain purposes, uh, and then uh, technical aspects, and so all within that realm, we have the gathering of intelligence. And I just thought we could do this better. We can do this better and serve the American public better, um, and we can make it a place our our agents and our intel analysts want to be. Right? I I had a a large idea for this this what I call the JIOC, the Joint Intelligence Operations Cell, where we work together with our partners in the government to create, where the FBI, we're supposed to be the leader in intelligence, the domestic platform, or AOR, and so we would have house with um, within Hoover or, or a building our partners, and then we would have field areas um, in the field, in each 56 field offices, JIOCs in the field, and so they work together like a large octopus, kind of, right, with these tentacles out there, and then we could serve our local platforms so that we could be a hub where if anybody had a question or something, we could work together more seamlessly. And I said, but this is going to take 10 years. This is going to take right. time and effort and resources and branding and marketing and travel. And we need to sell this to people and then produce results. And no one. And this is what this is what they came up with. with their, their version of that, which was a bastard of that, was called the FIG, the Field Intelligence oh, Group. Oh, but and the, we, yeah. But the FIG didn't do it. So for people's understanding, yep. the way that I would do it is, you know, I worked on an, an intelligence squad for my first two years. So I had Intel analysts on my squad. Mm -hmm. And so I would go to my Intel analyst and I'd say, hey, I don't understand what this thing is. We're working on China. So I've got a, a question about Chinese culture, Chinese intelligence services, mm -hmm. you know, whatever my adversary is. And I would say, you know, can you give me some info on this? And they would say, I don't do tactical intelligence, I which can't is to say do they it. don't, they don't, they don't work cases. They write term papers yeah. and then they would leave. And it's like, well, thanks for that. I guess I'll just try to figure out, like, I don't know anything about China other than what I learned. Yeah. And I learned enough because I'm not a dumb guy and I don't sit in a sure. job and not learn it. But at the same time, the model that you're talking about would be like, I could go to this JIOC and say, look, here's the, the problem that I'm trying to solve. Can you give me some like larger background on the threat that I'm mm -hmm. dealing with? And what's my best way to approach it? And then we could, you know, war game it out and say like, do we want to use these certain types of tactics or techniques? Do we want to use these these tools mm -hmm. that we have? Do we want to employ certain legal things? Do right. we want to, you know, put a human source in or whatever it may be? All those things would have been something that would have been interesting, but I, it was just me. It was just Kyle at 35 years old, speaking no Chinese, no Mandarin, just looking at yeah. FISA, trying to figure out what the heck was going on with my case. Oh, uh, so, yes, you know, it would have made a big difference. And I, I felt for my the analysts I've worked with over time, a lot of them were like, "Yes, yes, this is a great idea. We want to. We, we came to the bureau to serve the mission, and right. so they, they said yes. But then higher up, they would say, "Well, you no, you can't do that. That that's mm -hmm. a tactical product. You are a." uh intel product and so you can't work on that and so they would be ready to go and then they they couldn't do it whereas our we have um i can't really, our sos's which are right. kind of like tactical analysts which if it was me and i had my druthers i would call them that just call them tactical analysts because yes. no one in the world knows what a so i mean other than the great song and you know, uh, Morse code. No one knows what an SOS is. And that's right. They are super capable. They're super valuable. Yes. But I always thought that, that there should be more, um, blending between those roles. And I, at times didn't know who to ask. I would say, I, I don't know who I'm afraid to ask anybody because 
sometimes I'd ask the ant, the Intel analyst and they would help me, but then they might get in trouble for helping me because they weren't supposed to be in tactical anal analysis. And then I would ask the tactical, I mean, the SOS to do something, but it just, it starts to be it, like, I just need it's, somebody it's to It's a nightmare because me. yeah, you're stepping on people's toes. You're not trying to, you're just trying to do the mission. You're trying to do the work that's out there, which that you're being tasked mm -hmm. with. And there are people that have the information you need, but they're not allowed to give their attention to that that product that you require yes. whatever it is. Yeah. And so so often and, and my SOS that I had on my Intel squad was amazing. He was a fantastic guy. Um as sharp as anybody, master's degree in national security studies. He was a Cobra helicopter pilot. Like he was a super cool dude. He wanted to get operational. We told him we were going to send him out. You know what the honeypot is, right? Mm -hmm. As a as a tactic. Um he always told me that if we ever needed to like woo some Chinese woman that he was up for it he was single and he would go out and be the honey D so we would always laugh we'd put like a little jar of honey on his desk and stuff and he said if he That's took funny. the jar off then he was going to be operational so he was 100% on board with our mission I could call him from the airport and ask him if somebody got on a plane yeah if I called yeah. my intel analyst about that uh she would have just hung up because she was busy editing a term paper and so which they which they were required to do you know I it's I'd not her analysts. fault that is her job yeah, yeah. she gets paid they they're there said, you know, you have to get these products out, right? And and the products take so long to get out. You know, I laughed sometimes. Um, you know, the FBI assesses with medium confidence that uh, you, 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 it's it's these funny gyrations of the of the intel language that, as a That's right. agent, came across as absurd. Sometimes I remember reading some of these things and the products take so long to get out sometimes. And I know they're trying to do better, but That's sometimes right. we'd get a product that the FBI assesses with a high confidence that the, the Titanic sunk. And I Correct. was like, you know, it came out in 2022. I was like, thank you. Thank you. It, yes. It's well-written, you know, so you check all that. the dots, but now, now I've got that in my pocket to go with. And they were it, it it's but that's the problem it's the bureaucracy right we put metrics that the they say intel leads ops metric lead the office yes because i was told i was told by an asac one time if you're not out arresting somebody or doing firearms you better have your virtual academy done and virtual academy for those who don't know is the mandatory training like don't if you get blood on you wash your hands if by the way there's if, some there's some actual errors in those trainings I've, I've been a paramedic long enough that when i first got that training i wanted to scream i was like this is not accurate there was actually federal <laughs> law that was that was in contrast to what they said called the ryan white act but anyway yeah oh, it's funny it, it's the worst and i actually got told when i was on unpaid leave that i had to get my virtual academy on on you know loan set up because my SAC was going to get dinged on his bonus. And I wrote that I was disinclined to acquiesce to their requests because the last time I showed up to do work when I wasn't getting paid, uh, they put me on AWOL status. So this is like that stupid bureaucratic crap that just sort of like weighs down the otherwise mm -hmm. capable people. Um, but that being said, if you just did your timesheet and you did your virtual academy and you didn't upset anybody and you smiled and said yes, and you know, sometimes you brought so in true. a new bag of coffee, you could go 20 years and never have a single accomplishment and walk out as a you know GS138 and you're making 158000 dollars a year and you'd be true. doing just fine. And you would never have made a single impact on the world and That's you would true. never have bothered anybody. And the FBI would have thought you were just a model. They would have given you two 10-year pins and thanked you for your service. And they wouldn't have yeah. fought you over anything. I, I said this when I left. I, I said, you know, we talked about this. Well, let me just finish. I went to um, director of intelligence and 
I was there and I had a really good unit chief uh, for a time and I had a unit chief. It did not go so well right. uh, uh, that that treated me very poorly. I, I And I, I hesitate. You know, I've done things where I've been like, yep, I should have got a lump for that one. Um, but there are other times where I was like, that wasn't fair. You, you're not mm-hmm. treating me right. And I had a unit chief at the time and uh, she treated me very poorly, very, very poorly. Uh, and it was time for me to leave the directorate of intelligence and leave headquarters. And I realized I can't make it here. You know, they say birds of a feather flock together. And I said, so do cannibals. Right. And I can't be part of the group that eats their own. I, yeah, it's a very specific tribe. It, it, it is a tribe. And I was told things like, um, don't climb too high, too fast. Cause you're only as good as your first mess up, right? You're only as good as the first time that you get a big black mark and then you're out. So wait until the end and climb as high and as fast as you can in the last few years. Uh, every two years you should be changing your job. So get in six months. You're in, find out what you're doing one year, right? Start writing your KSE KSAs, apply at 18 months, promote out at two years, keep changing. I said, but how can you help a program? Uh, you're, you're not even there long enough to know the names of the people. That's right. If if you read good to great, this was one of the things that I that broke me a bit. I was instructed to read uh, some leadership books. I have been reading leadership books for some years. And good to great says that the very first thing you should do to become great is to get the right people on the bus. The problem in the bureau is we have such high turnover rates in executive management. It's like a school bus. And the drivers are changing. The kids are changing all the time. You can never get the right people on the bus long enough to enact change. That's why the FBI worked with, for all you say about Hoover. Yes. He was a stalwart and steadfast person in that seat. He built power and built a program because he was in the seat long enough to do so. That's true. Now, you, you know, um, good and bad. He was also, he was also a gangster, too. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. yeah, but he was committed. But he was always a gangster. He, he was, yeah, he was always a gangster, <laughs> but he was committed. You're right. Um, it's so funny. You talk about leadership books. One of my bosses actually assigned us a bunch of leadership books. He was a mm-hmm. West Point grad. He was a HRT guy. He came out after 10 years there. Mm-hmm. So obviously no case experience, but that was okay. We were on a SOG squad operational. That was all made sense. And uh, one of the things I found really funny is that he assigned us a bunch of books and then he read none of them. <laughs> and he just, we were going to have like a book reading together and discuss it, but he didn't read any of the leadership books. Um, that yeah. being said, he was a pretty decent guy. There's there's a, a book that I really like that's called The Men, The Mission, and Me. And the title yeah. tells you almost all of it. Then it's a bunch of anecdotes proving his point. Yeah. And he has a couple of rules. But if you put things in that order, the men, that's your field, you know, the people out there doing mm-hmm. the job, which would work very well for the Bureau. The mission, which is the overarching principles that guide us. And I'm last as the leader. Mm-hmm. And if you if they did that, it's the same thing as getting everybody in the right place. You would stick around longer because it's the right thing to do for the mission. It's the right thing to do for the men who are out there working on it. But that's not the Bureau's way. The Bureau's way is to promote these blue flamers, which for people don't mm-hmm. know, that's our, that's our internal term for folks who just want to climb that ladder. And they have such awful things. You mentioned cannibalism. I want to dig back in this because I think there's more to it. My mm-hmm. first boss was one of those. Like I said, nine years, she was already an acting section chief when she came to be my SSA. She needed to knock out two years on the desk so she could mm-hmm. promote to whatever the next level was. And mm-hmm. she was constantly talking to people about how she had heard the best way to make ASAC for her was to was to fire somebody from her squad. Oh, great. To show that she had to show that there was this whole current and that that cannibalism, there's an entire subcurrent that you may have not have ever seen it or it may not have been spoken about loudly, but there's a whole group of people at headquarters at the FBI that believe that by pipping 
uh, performance improvement plan and firing or by getting rid of somebody who's on pr probation, it shows that you have the spine for real leadership because you got rid of somebody and they have that belief and then they act on that belief. So she constantly threatened me with my job, which was kind of funny because I was already off probation and I was a veteran and I was like, well, I guess you could try. Um, and I would just print off like she would say, you're on probation. And I'd say, no, I'm not. Uh, the CFR tells us probation is only one year for military veterans. And she would go, mm -hmm. no, that's not real. And I would print off the statute and I would just leave it on her desk like once every week because it just pissed me off that she was a fool. It's like either we're a law enforcement agency or we're not. You should know the law. And also you're not a good manager and you don't know anything about HR. But uh, but that cannibalism that exists yeah, and the, and the ego that goes along with it too, because it has to be an ego component is the other piece. You know, I, they I, have to I do. That they're right. I do think so. I do think that the, the if you think you're a, a type A personality, go to headquarters and you will realize, oh, oh, never mind. Like I am not a type quadruple A. I'm I'm stepping over, you know, the the bodies of my comrades to get up that ladder. And, and it's unfortunate. I don't want to paint the whole group like that, but I was really, really a bit at headquarters and. I, I went to headquarters willing to say, all right, here's where I'm going to make a change. Here's where I'm going to help out. I am committed to this program and helping out the people and and being a, I, I don't want to say that I'm great, but to say that I was committed to the idea of servant leadership, uh, where I'm going to lead this program and I'm going to make change to best serve the public and, and to really help the people in the field. And I had a great unit chief uh, that told me, he said, um, he said, that's, that's great, Chris. He said, did, did they ask you for your opinion? And I said, no, sir. And he said, exactly. Wow. And, uh, he said, he told me the story of Wiggles the pig. I'll never forget this story. And boy, boy, does it, it, does it really sum up my career? He said he lived on a, his uncle had a farm and he would go out there and, uh, it was time for Wiggles to become bacon. Right. So he has this squared drawn and, uh, Wiggles used to sleep over here and here was the trough by the gate. And they said they'd come pour some that food in for Wiggles. And here comes Wiggles trotting around, comes up to the food and blam, they, they, they shoot Wiggles in the head, but it doesn't kill Wiggles. Wiggles lives and he takes off running and screaming, kind of glanced off the skull, I guess. He runs around and runs around and they give it a few minutes, few minutes. And here comes Wiggles again, right back to the trough and blam. And that one got him. And so they said, listen, if you go to the front office and they take a shot at you, don't go back to the front. You know, don't go back to executive management with your idea. And I said, is that how we live? Right. Is that I told my ASAC one time in Anchorage, I said, I come in. I had a really I had an ASAC that would let me go off as an act as an acting SSA. He would let I, you know, I wasn't rude, but I would say, I, I don't think this is right. I think this is a betrayal of of my squad. Um, I think this is, you know, this is poor, poor planning. And I, I would just give him the full read on what I thought. Uh, and if he said that's enough, or he said, you know, that's the way it is. Okay. But thank you for letting me speak my piece. Uh, but I said, the problem is, sir, when I stop coming in here, when I quit coming in, it, it means I don't care anymore, or I don't mm -hmm. think there can be any change. And this was about two years before I ended up resigning. And I said, so you realize that I'm coming in because I still care. But if I stop coming in, that that's when you should know that there's really something wrong. Um, and 
I, 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 in my time in the director of intelligence, I was supposed to go, uh, I was, I got accepted to the national intelligence university. I had been accepted to do a joint, uh, duty with a sister agency. I had some real big things going, uh, for me, but then I said something in a meeting. Uh, what I actually said in a meeting was, sir, I gave them the paperwork and I'm not sure what happened after that. Uh, they considered that an outburst. And they said, if you're going to have outbursts like that in meetings, then uh, you can't represent us at the uh, joint duty. And I said, right. I said, yeah, that, one, that's that's just a that's just a cover for whatever other sin you'd already had, which was probably just trying to be helpful, trying to be helpful and honest. Um, so then I uh, was told so that all fa that that was taken away. And I said, OK, uh, I I'm very sorry for the outburst. Uh I don't think you understand what an outburst is, but I'm sorry for the outburst. That's right. And then I had I had a meeting uh, with my unit chief, a different unit chief than the one that had really helped me. Uh, and she told me that I needed to practice speaking when spoken to. And so I said, okay. I wrote that down in my little binder. I have a little black book I wrote that down in, and it was time to come to Alaska. Or it was time, the opportunity to come to Alaska came out, and I was... Alaska's always been something, a place my family and I wanted to go. It's just been mm -hmm. in our bucket list, and we really wanted to go there. There was a SWAT transfer, and I was so excited. This is what it. Year this was is this? our chance. This was in uh, 2017. Or I remember that. Yeah. I remember that transfer coming out because I think it was the first of its kind. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I I hadn't seen one, and I jumped on it. I had one. Yeah, week there, that was the first paperwork. one. <laughs> and I saw it and I said, I am ready to go. Uh, I you guys got another guy that way from Chicago, I want to say, who yes. took a similar transfer. He was the second guy to get that. Yes. And an excellent guy. An excellent yeah, guy. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, you got we the first one. I remember seeing it come out and going, man, I'd go to Alaska because I hated Washington. I'd go to Alaska, oh, yeah. but uh, I'm not SWAT. And uh, maybe they would just <laughs> yeah. take me as like as a pre-SWAT guy. Like I told you <laughs> would be a great SWAT operator. Yeah. Like I was I was a medic for a long time. I, obviously, I'm a gun guy. But uh, yeah, anyway, sure, that's funny. Sure. So you got that transfer. That's very funny to me. Yeah. I and two other guys got the transfer. And but I remember, unfortunately, going um the unit chief wouldn't sign off on the paperwork and they said well you have a meeting with the section chief and they're going to talk to you about like kind of your outburst and the, the this was all kind of around that same time and i remember being in a office with a section chief and another section chief who thank goodness realized that i wasn't the problem and I literally had, because now it's not just me, right? It's not just me that's going to be affected by this transfer or lack thereof. It's my family. This is a that's dream right. that my wife and I have had for ever, but since we started dating and we, you know, we started dating in college. And so it's, it's been years we've had this yeah. dream to go to Alaska. And so I'm sitting in this office and I have my hands up like this. And I said, I'm, I don't want to be a problem. I just want to go to Alaska. Please just let me go. Like I'm not causing any problems. I just want to leave. And really feeling like a hostage, right? I'm just trying to take my family to the place we've always dreamed. And moreover, the place where you will never bother them at headquarters again. Yeah, yeah. I will never bother you. And so... You're so far removed from their problems. All they got to like, do is sign off on it. But the problem is, is you said you wanted to go. 
You said you uh, yeah, wanted to go, and now they can, can hold it against you. We and and that's really how I felt it was. And so I came out of that meet. I I really think my unit chief at the time was wondering what I was going to say about the her. Um, what are you going to say to them about me? And if you say something bad, then I won't sign this. And so when I went into the office, uh, fortunately, this other section chief, he says, I can tell you're not the problem. Get out of here. Right. Wow. I said, thank you, sir. Like you, you guys will never have a problem from me. I just want to take my family there because, you know, I don't know when this opportunity is going to come back. Right. Right. So, uh, I go back, I have another final meeting, uh, thereabouts and, you know, the, the unit chief tells me, well, you, you know, when you're on SWAT, you have to be able to communicate and talk to folks. And if anybody knows me, I will talk your ear off. I will talk your ear off. <laughs> and she said, but you never come talk to me. And I said, ma'am, if I may remind you, you told me, and I flipped into my book on this date at this, on this date during our meeting, you need to practice speaking when spoken to. And so I have practiced that ever since. And so I think that was kind of, <laughs> well, it's not what I meant. Did she, did, yeah. Did she take that as a slap in the face? Because no, leave it to FBI management to say something, you practice it, and then them take offense at it. Yeah. Nobody that's... makes me, nobody makes me bleed my own blood. Right. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's so, so sad. I said, I, I just, <laughs> anyhow, I got the transfer yeah, and I showed up in Alaska and do you I think, show let up me ask I, you this, if, yeah. if you had not gotten that transfer, where would you have been? Was, was that like a make or break deal for you in a lot of ways, you think? Um, I would have been, uh, so let, let me say this. I don't know what would have happened because at the time I felt that I was being uh, attacked uh, and I was being, you know, we use the word attacked, right? I wasn't being physically assaulted, but I felt right. that I was being unfairly treated for mm -hmm. things that I had done that were not incorrect, right? It wasn't like mm -hmm. I had been doing something bad and I got, you know, got the stick like I should have. I was being unfairly selected out for poor treatment. Things were being taken away from me. And I think you'll find this interesting. I went to the ombudsman and I went to, uh, there's another office there. I can't remember who they are. Uh, the employee, the employee assistance program, EAP. I've been I went to, to both. I went to both <laughs> those programs and effective one, you at headquarters there, you have to make sure you go a different route so they don't see you going there. Because if they yes. see you going there, I was concerned it would get even worse. Yeah. Two, uh, effectively, what I was told was, what do you think's going to happen? Like you're you're even if one, if you win the battle, you're not going to win the war. Right. Two, what makes you think you're going to win the battle? Right. You're I mean, you're effectively a, a big white looking male complaining that you're being mistreated by this unit chief. What, like what you don't really have a platform to stand on. And and here's the thing I said, they said, because they because see everything through that grievance politics, by the way, that's, that's and, what we're saying. You're not saying it, but it's true. I'll say and it. that's the, the problem is I said, here is, here is the problem in the, in one of the problems in the bureau, they say, is they, are they treating you bad because of your race, your religion, your sex? Yes. Um, and I said, no, they're just treating me bad. Like, right, they're just why, crappy why, managers. Like, why, why does it need to be yeah, a grievance? Yeah, like I don't understand. <laughs> I why had this that exact same conversation. Why does that have to be the only? The if they're just bad people that are doing bad things, that's fine. But if yes. they have they do it for a terrible reason, 
And I said, listen, you know, it was a female unit chief and I'm a male, but I don't, I don't think that was it. I don't think that had anything to do with it. My race, my, uh, my gender, none of that had anything to do with it. I just felt like I was being mistreated by a, a bad boss, a bad supervisor. Right. And I wasn't going to lie to try and make something up. I just said, well, I'm, I'm just going to leave the situation. So I get to Alaska. The SWAT team is great. And I'm on SWAT and I'm working white collar. I have some great bosses that really take care of me. And I have it as good as you can have it. I, I, your, S, your STL there in 2018, I went out and I met him. And I don't remember his name, but he was awesome. He was like one of the coolest yeah. guys. Um, yes. Just a great dude. I literally showed up for an SOG mission. We were doing a white supremacy case up there. And I and I went in and I was like, who's the firearms, you know, PFI? And they yeah. go, oh, it's whatever his name is. And yeah. uh, and I go, can I talk to him? And they go, yeah, sure. So I go and I, I know say, him very hey, well. I, yeah, I go, I need to get a call in. Can I do that? And he was like, uh, he goes, yeah, you want to get a call? Uh, what's your concern? I said, look, I just flew like 2,000 miles with my rifle. I want to sh- make sure my, my zero is good. I don't know what I'm getting into. And he goes, yeah. hell yeah. He was like, meet me at the, you know, at the airport because the range is at the airport. He yep. goes, meet me at the airport yep. at this time. So I drove out there in my rental car and I pulled in and he drives in behind. We drive across the live taxiway, which is hilarious. People who don't know this, you know, wouldn't know yes. that there's an FBI shooting range right next to the airport in uh, in Anchorage. Which is and crazy. It's crazy, but it's great. And so we we line up and he goes, all right, um, you know, do you need me to zero your rifle? And I looked at him like he had, you know, like a dong run out of his forehead. And I go, um, it's my rifle. Why would I need that? And he goes... I don't know. It takes all kinds in the bureau. And I go, fair enough. I go, I'll just throw sandbag rest down and get it done. And he was like, outstanding. Let's go. So he goes, let's get a 10, uh, 10 round zero and see where you're at. So I throw it in. Looks pretty good. We make a couple tweaks. We do another 10 round. We're good to go. He goes, how comfortable are you with our qual? I go, I'm very comfortable. And he goes, do you want to see if we can knock it out in three minutes? Uh, I'll do my standard. You do yours. We'll just go as fast as we can go. And we'll just run down the line. And then I'll just send your score back to your, to your PFI. My PFI was a witch. She was a horrible person. She was one of the most useless people I've ever met in the FBI. Uh, I assumed she was a lesbian wrongly. I found out she was married to an agent and I was roundly chastised for that. But you just assumed she was always trying to like big D everybody. It was very weird. She drove like a big Jeep. She talked about, I never sell guns, all this other weird stuff, right? So we go out there and we run this qual like super, super fast, probably three, three and a half minutes. And he looks over and he goes, I think you outshot me. And I go, I wasn't going to say anything. And he goes, nice. You know, so yes, that. he's like, he's that like, let's break this sucker him. down. That great. is, it, I, I know the gentleman you're with. speaking of, and man, that guy is like family. Uh, took care of me. I, 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 I think very fond. I still talk to him. Think very fondly of him and uh, his replacement, the man, the gentleman you know from Chicago. One of the hello, how are you, sir? Saw him just pop up there on my screen. Yes. Yeah, sneaky guest coming in. We'll we'll get to Steven in just a sec. Sorry, sorry about that. Uh, so the uh, gentleman that replaced him, one of uh, two of the best leaders I've worked with in two different ways, yeah. uh, passion and and genuine care for their uh, the people they're they're serving, servant leadership, and um, in and then and also in this uh, the most recent SWAT team leader STL, a uh, professionalism that uh, is impressive uh, is inspiring. And so leaving those sort of people was very hard, uh, very hard. But um, I was there and I, 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 what I really want listeners to know is I've always been a white collar guy. I, I have a master's degree in uh, economic crime management. I was a certified fraud examiner. I just like white collar and I was on a white collar squad. It's complicated squad. too. That's not a thing a lot of people want to go do. 
people should no, know. No, nobody people weren't climbing over me to get to get to work healthcare fraud in Alaska, which <laughs> which is right. good because I, I had job security, but I was working SWAT. I'm a senior agent. Nobody's really checking me, my time and my desk. And uh I was in charge of a uh task force, a um task force is a non-official task force because it wasn't yet funded uh by headquarters, but a task force here, and we were really doing some good. And so all of those things to say that when I left, I had everything I could have wanted. I had the job I wanted. I had the, I was on SWAT. I was the lead breacher. They let me break stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, as I got older, that stuff started to be me sometimes, but I get to break stuff. Um, and I had great group of uh, uh, SWAT brethren. I had a great, I, I was on a squad I wanted to be on. And so one of my friends said, can you can you just put your head down and work cases? And I said, have you seen um, it's a it's a advertisement, I think, for a cartoon show. And it's a dog that's just sitting there and, and the flames are kicking up around him. It's a cartoon dog. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a says, meme. Yeah. Yeah. It's a meme. Fine. And he's like, this is fine. This is fine. It's totally fine. And fine. his arm catches fine. He just burns to the ground and. I said, I can't keep my head down in this book while the fire rises around me. And there's a macro right. problem. So that eventually led to me um, to going through these cycles of disenfranchisement. And I remember walking around the office saying, I, I, I don't care anymore about what I do. I, I don't know what to do about this. Somebody help me get back on track. I don't feel like you care about what I'm doing. I feel like all that's important is if it's green or red on the dashboard, for executive management, yeah. make it green. And if it, other than that, like you said, sir, you could just, it, it's not really what you do. It's what you, it, it it's, is it green or red? It, are we getting the right metrics? You know, my buddy, uh, my buddy in, in Montana, he always says, whenever something really illogical came out of headquarters, or we would get some terrible policy. He would say, sure. he would go, you know, that briefs well. And as long as it briefs well, I think it's good yeah. to go, but there's something really true about that. It also uh, brings back to you know your feeling is the same thing that Phil told me, and he told me this yeah. a couple of years before they walked him out. He said uh, this started off as a passion, and it became a paycheck. And once you get into that mode, there are certain types of people, and you're one of them, and I'm yeah. one of them, and Steve Friend is one of them, and so is Phil. That you can't just put your head down and catch fire for a paycheck because there's something wrong, and it needs yeah. to be said. And if nobody understands it. You're going to be the one who's the casualty. As if, like, it's going to be your values, it's going to be your integrity, it's going to be your mental health. Your family's going to yeah. suffer because you're going to come home angry, and they're not going to know why. And I can just—I mean, I feel for you because I know exactly what that Thank feels you. like. It's—it's it's such a rotten thing. It's such a rotten uh, feeling too. I'll finish up with. I there was a while there where I, I kept going through these cycles, and I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know how to fix it. Right. Um, I I said phrases like it feels like I'm screaming into space, right? I'm telling people things, but it doesn't matter what I say. Nobody's hearing me. I I I can't I could write it in a survey. I could call headquarters. I could tell inspection. I've been doing this for years and to no avail. And so then I began to become very stressed and angry going to work every day. I had a tightness in my chest and I realized that when you're 40 and you feel a tightness in your chest every day, that's a that's a bad path to go down. And then yep. I said the only way I told my boss the only way to make that go away was to stop caring and that's not like me and then now i'm in a very i never really understood what the terms disillusionment and disenfranchisement meant until i was in this realm and so finally i was saying i was starting to get 
mad and frustrated and I don't want to use the word depressed because I know there's people who have really gone through much more, but I was sad, right? I'm, I'm losing this that's, thing that that's I value so man. much. I mean, that's, that's what it is. It's depression and it doesn't, you don't yeah. have to be, you're not taking somebody else's experience of it to say it. Um, you know, that, that tightness, that anxiety that you have going into work. Um, I, I literally never felt that until the minute they came after me. And, you know, I'm sure if I stuck yeah. around longer, I would have seen it too, but you're feeling it and you know, that it's not right. You know that it's going right. into something like that, it's not the way you're supposed to live. It's not what God wants of us. It's not what you want no. for your family to, to see you come home with. So, um, that's a it's a it's yeah. a bold step to walk in. I want to um, I want to let Steve do his OPR files because we got him on the line here, and I think it's gonna oh go ahead. It's gonna it's gonna illustrate something really important about uh, our overall failure, and, uh, and we can continue talking about it afterwards. But I, I want to be respectful of Steve's time. Steve, uh, welcome back, brother. Uh, real Steve friend doing the OPR files. Is your audio working? I haven't heard you yet. Yeah. Yeah. Should be. Yeah. Me. Wonderful. So, uh, Steve's going to give us an OPR file, our kind of crime and punishment segment. I know what this one is, so I'm not going to weigh in, but, uh, we're going to let Chris guess one, what the punishment is and two, who the villain is in this story. If you don't mind reading what we've set up here. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I can give you the actual quarterly, which one it came from, if you need a hint, Chris, but I think this one will scream out to me. Uh, this was an unauthorized disclosure, lack of candor, an SES employee authorized disclosure to the media of sensitive information regarding an ongoing investigation and lacked candor under oath when questioned about it. In mitigation, the SES employee had an exceptional performance record and was dealing with unprecedented challenges. In aggravation, SES employee was expected to display utmost integrity. Lack of candor is incompatible with the FBI's core values. Oh, oh, we lost Chris. I think Hold we on, lost Chris's audio there, for a second. Does his, does his name start with an M? <laughs> does his last name start with an M? Send it. It, yeah. it, it rhymes with Encabe. Yeah, yeah, Encabe. I, I I can't uh can't confirm or deny it, but it does sound like Encabe. There there needs to be an epilogue to this. Uh, SES employee's pension was reinstated, and lawsuit uh, paid for his full legal defense uh, when a new presidential administration came into power, but. Wow. I'll wait for that email. Wow. Yeah, I, I don't. They don't often do amendments. I will. I will tell you. We were joking a little bit before, sir uh, Stephen, about. Uh, I did laugh often at the OPRs because, you know, would say, you know, this is egregious, right? Never read this, but it'd be like agent, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, murdered somebody and all these things, and uh, but agent was undergoing stress and uh, you know was highly valued, and I'd say. But agent took car to get cleaning at uh, off the approved route. Summary dismissal, right? <laughs> That's Let's, right. Yeah, agent, agent. In in mitigation, they are the best cleaners in town. Uh, right. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes those OPRs. And, 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 just and the, yeah. The other the other sense. cleaners had already lost his suit once. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And he, he can't go down another suit because no, he's got, only had two. He's only got two. Oh my gracious! Those OPR files. They are something. This I just kind of shows this. you when when the, when the, the former acting yeah. director is is removed on an OPR, you know the rot goes all the way up to the top, but unfortunately it goes all the way down as well. All right. Um, my question is: Is it an SES employee who's if once you get to be director, is that still SES or is it a whole other level? Because wasn't he technically I, the director? He was in an acting time? role. Ah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I will tell you though, there were times I thought, oh man. 
I need to work better. I need to be better for the Bureau, right? I need to do more. And I saw other agents, golly, there are some agents out there that just crush crime. They are incredible. They are writing title threes and they're doing search warrants. And I'm just kind of staring with my mouth agape, right? It would be like somebody making this this big wedding cake and I'm still working on jello pudding over here with my right. case. And that's right. And then I think, ah, oh, just I'm not doing enough. And then I read the OPRs and I think, you know, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, <laughs> I am I <laughs> at least I'm not doing that. Right. Well, there, I always think there's an 80-20 rule on this. It's like 20% of the uh the agent pool are doing more than 80% of the work out there and maybe all of the work. And maybe there's nobody else doing anything. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people. My buddy said there's the Federal Bureau of Investigations, and then there's the Federal Bureau of Things. And it's really fun to be in the Federal Bureau of Things because you're not doing investigations. Investigations take work. He didn't want to do work. Yes. I don't. Yes. I love him like a brother. He's a really, really good guy. But he was spot on. He was like, I don't want to do that because we saw what investigations look like in CI. And it looks like infringing on Americans' constitutional liberties. So when you're doing that and you're like, Hey, I'm spying on a dude because he didn't report foreign contacts six years ago when he was a GS 15 and he doesn't work for the government anymore. And I've got a seven year case on this dude. Like, are we kidding right now? Like that's what we're doing. We're, we're going to go out there and we're going to pull all of his bank records again. Why? Because he used to know a spy when he was in grad school 21 years ago. Like that's the kind of stuff that we had cases on. And when you're doing mm -hmm. that, it's like, man, we are really looking for work. That's that is a bad yeah. space. So if you were one of the guys that was even making jello, you were still doing more than the guy who was just washing the plates and trying to make sure nobody saw him as he snicked out the back because uh, it's Federal Friday. So, you know, I, I will I will tell you, though, some of those folks working these cases you in, in San Antonio. Well, let's just say in hypothetical field office in one field office, a there's no of that case. Right. There's no terrorism cases right. in field office. B, there's way too many terrorism cases yes. but both field offices have to meet these metrics in order to sustain squads and so then those agents are told well you can't close it because then we'll have no cases correct that's what i got and so the agent's kind of like well what do you what do you want me to do well i, I got a question i, I don't for you, know. Chris. yeah and, and then i'll let you, let you guys get back on whatever you're on um now we're talking about the metrics. Did you ever have the experience of having a, a supervisor or somebody in some sort of managerial role, role come to you and say, "Hey, you're doing really good work on you know, X case, but could you hold off on indicting it for a month or two so we mm -hmm. can get that next fiscal year?" Yeah, yeah, I, I, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that is. Golly, that's like that's like the normal course of work, right? Just hey, can we? How do we play these metrics? Uh, can you can you retroactively claim this for that? And how can we just make this thing work? Which, oh, at at some it, point, it has nothing to do with fighting crime. It has nothing to do with getting nothing. after bad guys. It has nothing to do with what the public believes the mission is. It's all about petty corruption again it's money it's how do we get those metrics so somebody gets a bonus and the next person gets the gold star so they when that person gets the bonus the guy who was helping him is going to get the next mm -hmm. job too and so all these things are just petty corruption it's so gross I, and, and it becomes practice you know unfortunately that yeah. sort that sort of thing becomes that, that's what i was saying earlier with with corruption or with some sort of you know, when you have somebody on, a, it's an insider threat. That's a real insider threat. Every, no one wants that, right? Everybody looks over you mean, there. And you says, mean like hey, a, you like a Charles McGonagall? Hey, you can't. Yeah. What, what about Charles McGonagall taking bags of cash yeah. as the SAC of Intel <laughs> in New York? 
yeah. Right. Are you, you following you can't this? Can't do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, and like then, who who knew? Some of those stories, and then so everybody says, "Okay, that's bad. You can't do that." Yeah, um, clearly. But bureaucracy with, hey, can this per- I, that it's so insidious because it doesn't seem bad on its face, right? It's when when you and especially when you're a new agent and you don't know any better, right? And you think, oh, oh, okay, yeah, I'll wait to indict that, or sure, I'll 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 hold off on this, or I'll keep the case open. Um, but those things really damage the mission because they are death by a thousand cuts, right? It's, and it's moreover, a thousand yeah, that- things. Not only that, but I would say that uh, there's an opportunity cost at doing those things because you're going to have to basically be squandering your time because that was the mm-hmm. thing you were doing this week, but now you're not going to do that. And now you're mm-hmm. blowing off that that mission. And so you're going to be blowing off another mission when you decide to go do that later because you didn't have anything to do. And so now mm-hmm. we're just, we're, re- we're literally making the mission meet the metric instead of just seeing mm-hmm. what mission comes, you know, what the mission determines and then running our metrics off it, which is what they're designed to do. They're designed to measure it, but they're gaming the system on every level. I don't want to hold uh, Steve. I know it's probably bath time over there. Brother, thanks for coming on and doing your OPR piece. When is that going to go uh, live on Twitter? Uh, OPR Files is going to be tomorrow uh, in the morning time, but uh, the the senior executive staff one shall be appearing later in the week, probably around Thursday. Okay, wonderful. People can look for that. I'll, I'll pump that when it comes out. Thanks for jumping on, buddy. All right. <laughs> See ya. Bye, sir. Steve is such a he's such a funny guy. Uh, he's slowly uh, moving that camera around his room. I get a different shot every single time that he he pops on, and now I'm getting it like a view of his curtains. I know there's a frond behind him somewhere. He's that's uh, excellent. Yeah, I, I think he's just doing it to screw with me, just to see if I notice. So I'll have to tell him, hey, nice curtains. Um, they they just painted it the last time that we were on. It went from being like a mauve to being like a to being that like, like sort of cool. Mint green, cool. that nice green, very yeah. refreshing color. Yeah, it's a it's a very refreshing Florida green, um, and yeah, and I don't I don't want to cut off any of this stuff because it's there was something that I think you told me about a meeting that happened after your letter went out in the office. Mm-hmm. Do you, mm-hmm. do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because I felt that was like really it was sure. very uh, it was illustrative of what goes on. It was illustrative, right? No, I had a meeting with. Um... Do you say beating? Uh, beating. <laughs> That's how it felt. No, I had a had a meeting with the uh, ASAC there, and it seemed that what I was saying was genuinely new to hear. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I sorry about that. If that ding went off in your ear, I uh, I went in and just kind of laid everything on the table. Uh, in a, in as in as polite a way as I could, but to say here is really this problem. How and, many days before you put the letter out? Um, good. Uh, one day, I think it was okay. one day. Okay. Yeah, I think the the next day I put the letter out, and I said, uh, "He's you know." I think he said, "Why hasn't anybody come in and told me this?" And I said, "Because." what's the difference going to make? And I said, I don't feel that you're going to go in and lay all this out on the table to your, to the SAC. I don't feel like he's going to go up and tell headquarters. I feel like this will go for about, a, you know, maybe you might mention something, but from my perspective, in order to move forward, you can't tell the emperor they have no clothes. And in order to, uh, 
keep things copacetic, you're going to have to just kind of go along to get along. And if nobody else is out there complaining, then what does it, what does it really matter? I said, right. Here, here's a phrase I've used. Unfortunately, there are many more left behind in the Bureau who have quit, but just haven't left. Wow. And that's true. What I'm, and now there are also the, those there who are working very hard. And I told people as I left, please, please, those of you who are still in the fight, who are young, who are still passionate, fight the good fight. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you talked about this email I had. Well, let's go back to the ASAC real quick. I said to him, I why didn't you come in here earlier? And I said, because it just would have gone bad for me. That's what everybody thinks. It's just it's just going to come back bad for them. And I said, your SSAs don't tell you because of the same reason you're not going to tell the SAC. The And you know this, and I know this. We all tell our underlings, right? The, the folks that are we're managing or leading, we tell them for the good of yourself, when you go into a meeting, this is not the good idea fairy time. This is the just get in and get out. Say yes, mm -hmm. sir, and no, sir. And if you have something, tell me. And then they tell you, and then you kind of filter it. And so by the time it gets all the way to the top, it's everything's fine. Right? Uh, hey, I don't want to work here anymore. And then three telephones later, yeah, everything's fine on the squad, boss. Yeah, everyone's having a good time. Everything's fine. Just let's yeah. move on. And what's it going to do? If I if I tell you, I here are the macro issues I see in the Bureau within leadership. Here are the solutions. You're going to say, what do you want me to do? What well, I can't fix it. And you're right. Or, you or, can't how, fix or it. how dare you? How, how dare you think that you even know? Like Right. And, and I have heard that, um, you know, I've received probably two or three to five phone calls, emails, text a day since I left. And I left on January 2nd of people saying, thank you for saying something. Thank you right. for illustrating or being able to expound upon, to illustrate, to write out all the things that we're feeling. And this is from professional staff, intel analyst, senior agents, junior agents, mid-career agents. And right. so I said, it's totally possible I'm completely off base. Maybe I'm the problem, right? When I left, maybe I was a problem. I don't think so, but maybe I was. But the yeah. number of people who have come to me and said, thank you for saying something, leads me to believe that there really is something there. And if executive management in the Bureau isn't willing to take the one moment look, right? If I keep telling you your rope, your rope is coming loose, your rope is coming loose and you're climbing and you don't have the humility, the humbleness to say, let me see if I missed, if I didn't tie the knot right. Right. When you fall and you are hoisted on your own petard, it's your just desserts. This is what yes. happens if you're not willing to take the critical look, which they expect us to take. Right. We're expected to take critical feedback. But if we can't do it ourselves, then how are we supposed to progress? Um, and I've been told there's something, that there's something really powerful about all that. And it's even nastier mm -hmm. to think that, you know, I had 300 people in a, in a signal group that sent that your letter. That's how I got access to it. That's how you and I kind of got into contact. Mm -hmm. So that's 300 more. You've talked about somewhere between 100 and 150 people reaching out to you as well. That's, um, you know, that's like one and a half to 2% of the FBI knows the problem. Yeah. 
And that, that just had the, that also had the wherewithal just to reach out and say anything about it. To reach There's out. way more I, than I, that. Oh, way more, way more. I know that there were. I, I thought your letter was squads. gentle. I thought it was very professional and very like somebody who was going to continue working there because I would have been a lot more aggressive about some of those things. And I think that you probably have it in you. I think that you probably have it there. And I also know that you have a, uh, a humility and, and a focus where you want to be, you know, you aspire to be better than you are probably like I do, you know, like it's one of those things we all try to do. So I noticed that when you were writing, I'm like, this is a man who's being very reserved. Um, I wonder if you might share with some of the, some of the parts in there, there was a breakdown of like four critical fails or something to that effect, if my memory serves. But if there's something in there that you would, that you would want to even read, I would love to hear it. And just what you think is the most meat of the the four pages. I I will. Yeah, I, I will. Let me, um, tell you, First thing, are you hearing those dings? I, I don't know how to turn them off on my computer. So no, you're I fine. Apologize. They're just coming. Okay, up. They're good. just on your end. <laughs> okay, I apologize. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you how to do that when we get done. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, I'm panicking over here trying to turn the dings off. But no, no, you're um, good. I, I want to start my letter with the very end, and okay, uh, these paragraphs I think set the stage for anybody listening for everything that I've said before. But I said there's far, far more I could say, and I'd be willing to talk to anyone who cares to listen. Right, I'd be willing to speak and sit down and lay these problems out and solutions. Um, and I said, I say, on, on, I only say all of this because I genuinely care about the FBI, and I know there are so many good people in the FBI who sacrifice and work so hard to serve the mission, protect the public, and do the right thing. Um, people who really want it to be the best law enforcement agency in the world. And I said this: the FBI is not full of corruption. We're not a monolith, like you said, sir. But it is full of bureaucracy, which can be nearly as damaging or worse to the mission. And I, I explained that it's like you and I said, we all agree corruption is evil, but bureaucracy is subtle. It quietly strangles the motivation. And the we must fight this infamous bureaucratic phrases of it's just too big to change. Nothing can be done about it or that's just the way it is. And that's what mid-level executive management must do something about. I can't do it in the field. You ASACs and you SACs must come together and critically examine the Bureau and you must make a change or you higher levels up must say, let's do something here. But I want to say this sentence. I earnestly pray for the best for you all and for the FBI. I pray for your safety and I say all these things because you are part of the thin blue line that protects our families, our businesses and our country. Fight the good fight. Speak the truth. Stay safe. God bless. You know, I in reading that, when I left the bureau, I golly, I, I didn't expect it, but I shed a tear right walking out that door. I bet because I just, I, I, I was really leaving something. Right, I was cleaving from something that had been such a big part of me, and it was it hurt because I didn't want to have to do that. Um, what I say up here, though, to go down to go to what I think is the problem. My SAC had asked me at one time, what are your three management principles or leadership principles? And I was kind of put on the spot, but I said, here they are. Enable, empower, and care. Enable your subordinates to be able to do their job. Let's give them the tools, right? Can they click on the button? Can they, do they have what they need? Empower right. them means to tell them, I believe in you. I trust you. I have your back, right? I want you to do what you think is right. And I think that you're the right person for the job. And then care about them as real people, real humans, right? I would tell my guys, listen, if I called them and I heard their kid in the background, hey, this isn't important. Give me a call back, right? I, I, You have a real life that's really important. 
if I called you on a Saturday when I was acting, there was a real reason, or I wanted to go ice fishing, right? But I'm not going to call you in for a foolish metric or for something dumb. Your time is valuable. You are right. because you're valuable to your family, right? And I want you to know that I care. Here's what I said, though, are the three things I see practiced by executive management in the bureau. Protect, promote, abandon. They protect themselves from any negative marks. And this inhibits missions because they say it's better to be protected than to take the risk. They promote themselves by finding or creating something to write about. So they either find a problem or create a problem kind of out of whole cloth, then correct that problem. But the problem is the subordinates, you are working for trained investigators. We can tell when you're just doing something for yourself. It's so true. Then, it's so transparent. It's so transparent. And they don't think it is. And then they abandon the office, the people and the programs, and they never call back. They don't call back and say, hey, how's that thing I started? Or how's that right. change I made? They don't care because they're on to the next routine of doing the same thing and do the same thing and do the same thing. And this causes yeah. huge, huge problems of serial promoters. Yes. Right. Uh, and they're so at the top also, right now. That's what's wild is those people are at the top. It's yeah. it's totally populated with them. Um, and the bureau is paying. I, I think it's in a, in a steam. I, I think it's like a, a snowball that's gaining more and more momentum. I don't know if mm -hmm. you felt like that, but I imagine walking out, you had to feel that this was not a correctable problem at your level or at any level at this point without maybe some really serious outside force. Um, do you, yeah. did you see, did you see a route forward that made sense to you? Well, sir, I'll, I'll tell you this and you'll appreciate it as a medic. Uh, the answer to that is in, in short is no. And here's why <clears throat> I said, if I was a medic and we were out in the field and you got bit by a Komodo dragon, right. And you asked me, all right, well, what am I going to do? I was like, well, you're going to die because we're out in the jungle and you got bit by a Komodo dragon. Game the over. only the only way to I can't fix this by scrubbing it on the outside. The only way to fix this is by flushing it from the inside out. And that is the level of change I think the bureau needs in order to re like recorrect uh, the path that we're on. But that's a monumental change. Now it can happen. You have the right people right there, right at the top of the cauldron, boiling, ready to promote. If you just create the right incentives and the right programs, why have we not followed corporate corporate society and realize that you can do remote program management? You would get the right people in the right jobs if they could work from their field offices and be with their families and be in the communities that they're part of. You would get better uh, applicants because you'd have true long, uh, long in the tooth subject matter experts who have been working those cases for a long time managing programs rather than people who are trying to escape a situation or trying to promote. And listen, I promoted for the opportunity to get some money, but money is a good incentive. Money is the same incentive that is through the rest of the corporate world. But there's no incentive for an agent to go from doing all the fun things they like to getting into an ASAC or SSA position if I'm only going to make a couple thousand more. Unless I want to do something else. I need it to get to another position. I right. need it to escape a situation. I need it for my, or the worst is my own ego. There's if a lot of don't that. Have, there's a lot of it. Yeah, there's a lot of it. That's actually what ends up driving the folks the most because the other reasons don't make sense. Right. There's no, no reason that, to be I think an ASAC. Right. Yep. Yeah, there's no reason to be an ASAC unless you want to be an SSA. You know, that you have some of your best leaders stop at SSA. Um, there's no reason to be an SSA if you don't want to be an ASAC. I'm going to... 
Yeah, we, and, and we, we had it backwards. <laughs> and um, but you're right. Yeah, if you don't want to yeah. climb, then why are you going to start? Why start climbing? Then why start climbing? And unfortunately, it just starts the cycle now of climbing. And um, I I see that we have to change that system. The problem is, is I tell my SSA and he's like, what do you want me to do? I'm just trying to keep, you know, I'm just trying to keep this ship afloat. That's right. Okay. I'll tell the ASAC and I'll tell the SAC and then I'll tell inspection. And I've written these same things. I've told inspection. I've gone to headquarters. I've tried to say something and I tried to be the change. It's what everybody says. Well, then go change it. I am trying. Changeable. The, I, so I'll, I, I'll give you I an analogy. I was uh, I went to dive school with the Air Force, and um, when you're doing dive school, they just are merciless. Like all the things are terrible, <laughs> and so you I know bet. we had just finished a night dive in the dark. You just do like a mile and a half swim in the dark, and you hit a dock, and you're exhausted from swimming, and you know you get hit by sharks and other weird stuff down there. It's totally terrifying. Uh, you get up, and we load up on the boat, whatever, and they start motoring back in. They get into the middle of the harbor, and we're about ready to go, and they go, "Oh no." We're out of gas. Everybody, you know, divers on the gunnel. So everybody gets up on the gunnel. You know, you drop your tanks and you're just in there in your wetsuit and they have everybody diver splash and they throw out two, two ropes. And now you've got fins on and like 16 guys and you're going to pull the freaking boat into its slip. Right. One guy alone does not pull that boat anywhere. And he, and he pulls it in the wrong direction too, if he tries. The only way it works is a team gets together and you got 16 guys kicking in rhythm, calling cadence, you know, actually doing the work with the two guide ropes and the, you drag it in like a towboat. That's the only way that's, that situation works. And in so many ways, if you're, if you're over there solo, if you're over there trying to do it, you're, you're not going to make the change. Like you can't, there's no, there's no possible way that you're able to affect that individual change. And there's not enough critical mass of people who think like you, we're going to fix it. They just, it's it's a it's a losing battle you're just yeah. sacrificing yourself you're the one guy who runs down yeah. the, the field and you get mowed down by the machine gun nest because there's an entrenched culture that wants it that way too yeah. that's the other side thing yeah there's not enough people in the right positions right because i think what you have is you talked about the 80 20 rule you probably have this 80 percent that would be like yeah let's do it let's make the change mm -hmm. um or you know you probably have this this huge mass that's saying yes i want it to be different mm -hmm. but I, I wasn't willing to do the things I needed to do. I wasn't willing to make the sacrifices. And I don't mean personal sacrifices. I mean, uh, I hate to say moral sacrifices I would have to make in order to climb the ladder and the length of time it would take, right? And we talk about cannibals, but I was like, man, those cannibals need to stop eating people. Well, I'm not willing to eat people in order to teach them to stop eating people, right? I'm not That's willing right. to to go be one of them which i you're you're just not going to survive now there are some pockets of people who have climbed who are incredible leaders who could do great things but the withering gunfire they're going to take from those who um aren't going to want that sort of change coming down the pipe is is going to be impressive monumental and so I think there's five, there's what, five EADs. I know two of them and they're garbage. So that's not a good start. And I don't, and I don't know the other three and yeah. they're probably 50, 50, whether they're decent human beings, maybe less. And so you think, I'm just saying like at least 60, but maybe 80% of the EADs running the top of the bureau are trash as human beings. They have absolutely no moral 
They have no moral fiber. They have no problem doing the wrong thing. They pick the wrong battles and they're happy to stand on those. And they're happy to crush you if you have a problem with it. Um, and, and I say that from being personally in front of them and, and just watching them just going like, these are not serious people. They're not people like you and me talking like this. They would never be able to handle this conversation. We'd have to get back to favorite desserts yeah. and other useless, um, you know, trite things. The same way that when the FBI director goes in front of a field office, what's your favorite ice cream? And do people recognize you being so famous is the questions he asked. Not like, how do we deal with the fact that we have lost the American public's trust as an agency that was one of the most trusted names and brands in the history of America? You lost yeah. it. Like, like yeah. you're the guy who gets to come in and fix it and you didn't. So now what? Like, how responsible are you? Should you fall on your sword and and resign in shame? Because I think you should. But um, you know, it doesn't start from the top. There's no there's no honor out there, right? I don't know if you've seen you know, some of the. Go ahead. Yeah, I, one of the things I think is the problem is the same sort of mentality. You know, I've been in front of the director and, and other higher level ups, and they're like, "Don't say anything. Just keep your." And of course, I'm. I'm brimming with good ideas. I'm just sitting yeah. there. But they, you, know, you just need to put you, you just need to put me in the basement. Oh man, my poor guys. I I could tell you a story. We were um, doing protection, and I was like, "Hey, you know, there's a delicious cookie restaurant about you know forty miles that way." Is pretty much what I was doing. Oh, let's go over there. Thanks, thanks, Chris. Uh, thanks for making us take a big detour, but um. The, the problem is, is that nobody <laughs> says anything to the highest up. And so no. I don't even I don't even know what they know. Now, I sent this letter. I know a lot of people have read it. And right. if if there is somebody out there from the higher positions in the bureau, you can feel free to reach out to me. And if you read the letter in the bureau, I know that my contact information was on there. I I will not shrink back from what I said. I would say. I was wrong. If I was shown something that would say I was, but what I, I'm, I'm not ashamed of what I'm saying. I'm not trying to hide behind an alias. I, I wrote the letter to be read. I wrote the letter to address the issues. If I am wrong and I'm the only one that feels it, then I was wrong. But obviously that's not it. If Correct. there are, there are so many people in the bureau and I, I was saying, if you don't believe me, fine, send out a survey, have a, have another third party group send out a survey and all you got to say is do you 51% agree with this or do you, you know or do you not and if you right. get a wide margin that says a lot of what he's saying in here is correct then go from there that would cost take survey monkey take the survey monkey survey my question is is are you afraid of the results yes but that's I like, mean, that's why that's that's, like, that's why Phil doesn't have a job um, they can't handle, I mean, it's, it's literally true. If I read you what he wrote on his survey, it was actually like, it was, it was tongue in cheek. It was funny. He said, uh, that the FBI's Washington field office response to the January, no, it was to the, uh, summer of love. Wasn't it Phil? No, J6. it was the summer of love. It was to J six. So the J six protest, what was the FBI's response to it? And was it good? And their answer was, um, you know, he said it should be called crossfire hurricane to the revenge. And it should have a, a gravelly, like, you know, voice for an announcer doing like a movie promo and uh, that they should be ashamed of what they did. And then it said, you know, what do we do well? Like, you know, infringe on Americans rights. And what do we do poorly? Uh, perfect, you know, protect the Constitution. It was it was it was actually kind of silly. It wasn't like a, a serious thing. It was a lighthearted jab at like, maybe we should look at ourselves and know what's wrong. And that was enough yeah. for them to just be like, there can be no more fill. 
I'm sorry, Phil. Oh man. That, that that's what I'm saying about like the SWAT culture, right? Where you, you would say, well, what did you do? Right? Absolutely nothing. That's you know, right. What did, what did, what did what you did do? You right. Do? You, you did. What did you write? You did uh, failed. You failed. Correctly. Yeah, you, you failed. 100%. The best. You, you were the yes. best failure of all of us out here, but exactly. it can be said in a, um, it's okay. Right. Like that's all I want to hear what I did wrong. Cause I want to be better for you and I want to be better for me. And, um, I, I I want to be sharpened by iron, right? As iron sharpens iron. That's right. Uh, so too can one brother sharpen another. Uh, so that that's my biggest takeaway from all this is if if you, I'm out of your hair, right? You you can call me and talk to me, and nothing of what I'm saying is uh, privileged or is uh, classified information. So we can have a conversation at any time. If you don't want to deal with me, that's fine. But the Komodo dragon bite analogy, if you just put a blanket over it, it doesn't make it go away. No, it just dies. You have to look. It, yeah, it just festers and it gets worse. And I know that the Bureau knows, and I feel like I'm looking at this camera talking to the Bureau. You know that you're losing good people. There are good people quitting mid-career, and that should have never happened with the Bureau. You, yep. We had the highest retention rate. And that was that was you know that's also part of the problem. We don't have to worry about uh, SACs, executive management. Don't have to worry about retention or profit. And those two mechanisms in the corporate world uh, necessitate action when there's a problem. If Such I was a in a company point. and I had a 14 year employee who I would be mid management, right? I'd be something like that in that in that range. Mm-hmm. Or just one of my senior employees, my just senior professional staff. It doesn't matter. Yeah, senior professional staff. And I'm not saying I was a great guy, and I'm not saying I was the greatest employee in the bureau ever. But right. I felt like I was helping. Right? I I was respected by my peers. Uh, I was selected for um, to be a, an acting supervisor. I I tried to do the right thing. If I quit, you would think that somebody would come ask me what happened. And do you know did what you I have got? A, did you have an exit interview of any kind? Uh, at the very, very end, I did by the ASAC. But do you know what I got from the SAC? Hmm. I got an email at 10 o'clock at night, the Wednesday before Christmas, that said, I heard you were leaving. Thank you for your service. Merry Christmas. Unbelievable. And I was Not never... Never like, oh, could we uh, change your mind? Like you're a valuable employee, by the way, you're a certified uh, fraud examiner and you're a valuable asset to our team. And what could we do that would make it you know, right? Is there something that we're not doing for you? There's no self-reflection. Somebody asked me if the FBI could get better and I said they can't. And they said, why? And I said, because you could just look at it. They've had all of the reasons to change their things from attacking pro-lifers, from you know, uh, going after J6ers with this vigor that makes no sense to me and all these other kind of things. And what did they do? Did they look at themselves and say, hey, we look terrible in the public. Our optics are really bad. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. It looks bad. Half the American people don't trust us. You know, can we look in the mirror of self-reflection and say, what can we do better? How do we make ourselves better? No, they got another billion and a half dollars from Congress. Does that sound like an agency that's going to be doing any self-reflection? I don't think they will. I don't think they would ever even, it would never even occur to them is the thing that's so wild. It never even occurred to that SAC that they should reach out and try to retain you as an employee who they have literally millions of dollars spent up uh, training and experience mm-hmm. it. Millions. There's yeah. no question in my mind about that. 
you, oh, you're not a replaceable so asset. And, and like, it takes years to replace you, probably like 14, to be able to get someone who has that level of experience and seniority. And they did the same thing with my buddy Phil, who's sitting on this, you know, watching. They threw him out. He's a CPA. He's got an MBA. He's a mm -hmm. smart guy. They couldn't find a single place where this guy could go do good. No, they, he uh, was an affront to the regime. And they have no ability to look back and go, maybe we're the bad guys. Like, you know, that that meme, are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? It's the Nazis with like the, the goofy <laughs> teeth. It's like, mm -hmm. you are the bad guys. You're the bad guys. And that's not to say that there aren't people on the front lines working at a GS 13 level that are not great. I have a lot of friends in the Bureau, as, you, as do you, and they're good people. But that doesn't take away from the overall, the fact that the people that are steering the ship are doing mm -hmm. evil like just because you're doing a good job putting coal into the furnace you know and you're keeping the the, the things yeah. going and you know you're maintaining the water filtration and you're keeping the life support on in your boat uh whoever's driving that boat is like driving it into the iceberg and they yeah. keep doing it and they don't seem to care at all because they're going to jump off it, in a submersible and leave yeah, yes right yeah <laughs> right. yeah that could be a good children's but, story i don't know if that could be on your good tube we'll, we'll talk that, about that, that in a second because i don't Sure. I, I do want to pivot. So uh, here's the here's the question because we've mentioned humility, we've mentioned um, servant leadership, and mm -hmm. a lot of these Christian concepts, which are obviously uh, very foundational for you, and they've mm -hmm. guided a lot of what you've got going on. Because you know we've talked obviously off, uh, not just on this camera. Maybe pivot to what made you leave and and why you feel like what you're doing is is going to sure. be making the difference because everybody wants to make a difference as a man in the world. Like our job is to go and do something positive, to mm -hmm. do you know leave the world better for our children. You've made mm -hmm. a very tangible step in doing that by stepping away from the bureau, and we could we could belabor it like forever. I'm sure of it. Sure, There's literally unlimited amount of time that we could just waste on on how much they they did wrong to a lot of us. Um, yeah. But you've decided to make a positive change. You want to do something. You saw a problem. Tell me about that and what you want to do about it. Well, at the same time, uh, fortunately, the the good Lord uh, was to create another path for me. So as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as a, I'm a pastor, and I'm a Christian apologist, uh, which is uh, somebody who specializes in the defense of the Christian faith from an academic perspective, uh, what I started to see was my own son, who's now eight, uh, he was looking online and just trying to find something good to watch. He was looking at uh, YouTube, looking at the different sizes of planets, right? How more just good can you be? And the next video right under our nose was some idiotic video about parents who hate their kids and the kids have blood on their face. And it was just something that's clickbait. And he didn't really understand it or know why it was there. And it really scarred him, right? It really, he, why would somebody do this? Why would they make this? And so then I said, well, you know, let's look up a YouTube kids account. And so I went to look up YouTube kids and the first video it recommended for my son was what's it like to be a transgender boy or a non-binary boy. And I started to do more research. And if you look at YouTube kids, there is well over there's hundreds of videos within the lgbtqia plus agenda but moreover there are videos on how men men dressed in drag uh men singing songs about dressing in drag teaching children how to dance uh provocatively uh in in drag culture and i said well that's not okay and then if uh, on my website goodtubekids.com uh, i started looking at all the other groups nickelodeon disney uh, Cartoon Network, uh, Discovery, and I said, what is going on in children's programming? We're a long way away from Mr. Rogers. And so I said, why can't there just be something good? Why can't there just be good tube? 
And that was the seed. And so, you know, as well as I do, that when you are on SWAT and you look around and there's a threat, there's like a door open that somebody needs to cover to protect everybody's backs. Yep. You don't really wait to see if somebody's going to do it. You do it. You cover it, right? Right. Uh, You fill that hole so that your buddies don't get uh, take one in the back. And here we are. I looked around and I said, who's going to fight this fight for our children? They deserve a safe place, right? Our parents deserve a, a place where they can find the resources they need to protect and prepare their kids. And I said, I guess it's me. And I started working on the idea. And as I left, it became a reality. And so here I am now. We've launched this uh, for-profit subscription-based, monthly subscription-based service called GoodTube Kids. And we are creating a safe place for kids online and a website where parents can find the resources they need to protect and prepare their kids. And we're looking to create an app. You know, I'm learning uh, about business. I've never been an entrepreneur. I've never started an LLC. I've never, we're starting a nonprofit. 10% of every subscription that the parents pay for their kids goes back to kids through our nonprofit good to give. And so we're giving to charities and ministry. And I also want to help protect kids uh, with law enforcement. Uh, I want to help give presentations about how to protect your kids online, ideologically, theologically, uh, physically, digitally. Yep. And so there's this whole realm of good to go do. So I don't really feel like I've left completely left that sheepdog role of protecting right. our kids. I'm just doing it in a different way. And if we are honest about what's really the danger here, there are kids walking away and walking into surgeries uh, because they think they need to cut off different parts or do different things before they're ever ready to make those decisions because of what they've seen on YouTube, because of what they've seen in social media. Um, there are kids walking away from their faith, uh, because of what they've seen there. Somebody's always ministering to your child. It's what is the yeah. message? And we want a good place, uh, where children can watch things that are edifying and, and, and good. And How about anchored- some, uh, yeah. And I think that's, a, I think it's a brilliant concept. My wife and I do the same thing. Sure. We've got a, a two-year-old and a four-year-old and a five-year-old and we pre-screen a lot of the stuff. Like I don't want to be watching kids shows, but I got a pre-screen to see what their, what agenda they're pushing. Um, and is it some mm-hmm. climate hoax BS? Like that's the, like corporations are evil and I get it. That's kind of like the, the standard bent. I mean, I, I grew up watching like Captain Planet, but at the same time, I didn't grow up thinking that like all, you know, I didn't think Walmart was evil. I think Walmart is where you go and you get some stuff every once in a while, yeah. but I don't want to like worship at the Walmart, you know, altar or sure. anything. Sure. It, it, it's, it's a location that I went, they used to not have politics. I don't need to go with, like, we don't even shop at Target anymore because they've got this like trans agenda that's out in the front. And my yeah. wife is like, I just won't go in there. Plus I don't want like a man going into the, uh, to the bathroom where my wife and my little girls are going. Um, mm-hmm. cause I don't want to have to skin somebody in the parking lot. I'll do it, but I don't want to. So like the possibility always exists that that's out there. Right. So I, and I say that like somewhat lightly, but I'm pretty damn serious. Like if someone comes after my babies, like there's no other purpose in the world that I have, yeah. like, that's my highest calling at this point. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think I can imagine you feel the same way. That's why you mm-hmm. wear a mustache or a beard and show that's people right. that you're a man. That's right. You, you you let them know who you are right up front and look uh, right I, there. That's exactly it. I'll tell you what I drove. Uh, I drove cross country with my girls when we moved from Virginia to New Mexico for the bureau. And I I'm super keyed up as you can imagine, like this is a serious m- movement, like 2000 miles. I'm in a 
uh, a minivan with a little girl who was three and a little girl who was four at the time. And I'm carrying like all my ammo because I couldn't put it in the moving stuff. And I'm driving with these kids and thousands of dollars worth of ammo and a handful of guns and all kinds of wild stuff and a German shepherd in the back. And we kept going into these hotels and I had like twice the beard at the time. I looked like a total psycho because uh, I just come off the surveillance mission. And as I'm doing it, I told my brother, I said, my biggest concern is that someone's going to look and be like, I'm going to take that guy. He's vulnerable. You know, he's got those two little girls slowing him down. And I'm going to have to fight for my babies, like in some weird town that I stopped. And he goes, dude, I don't know if you've looked at yourself in a while, but like no one's looking at you and going like, that's the best target in this place. No one's that's looking right. at you and just deciding that's the case. And obviously the same thing with you. Like you, you well, at some point in time as a man, you carry yourself and you realize there are much lower threats that criminals are going to look at, but I still have a role and a responsibility in protecting mm -hmm. not just my children, but other people's children. And right. so you've stepped into that in this digital way. What mm -hmm. are the, um, you know, Cartoons are one thing. It takes a lot of money to develop a cartoon. I have to imagine, right. you know, there's digital animation, but what is some of the programming content that you want to put sure. out there? Uh, because being a sheepdog yeah. means that you also got to be prepared for a lot of things in this world. And it's not just entertainment, but it's learning, right? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we have on there, a lot of, uh, as a Christian pastor, we have a lot of information uh, from friends and uh, other content creators about the Christian faith. And, but one of the things is that it's not all veggie tales. In fact, we don't have veggie tales on there because we're marketing a little bit gr bigger group, but sure. not everything is a sermon, right? I need kids to learn youth. And when I say kids, we're talking about eight to 18. They're still kids. You yeah. know, I, as, as grown up as they feel they are, they're still kids. I need them to learn how to weld, how to iron a pair of pants, how to uh, handle a firearm or responsibly, how to start a fire, put out a fire, put up a tent, how to cook, how to help a charity, um, how to live your everyday walking around life uh, without having to hide or abandon your faith and your values, but still go out and be in the world, but not of the world. So mm -hmm. uh, good, good tube kids with Mr. Gonzalez is where we're going to show a lot of just daily life skills. How do I change a tire? What, how do I get ready for an interview? What's it like to work at Chick-fil-A? What's it like to work on a ranch? And expose kids to these things, which you can find a lot of great things on YouTube. The problem is, is you're one click from disaster, right? That's true. You're just one click from disaster. A friend of mine said, uh, a little bit of poop in the soup is still poop in the soup. And I said, that's, <laughs> that's a great way to put it. It is. That's brilliant. And that's, that's the problem here is my son said, YouTube is like a playground on an eight lane highway. Uh, it's a lot of fun until you get hurt. And we don't really realize how many kids are getting critically hurt emotionally. And it's leading to bad, bad things, bad surgeries, bad behaviors. Um, children are being digitally trafficked and then physically trafficked because of the groups they're getting to online, the things that they see online, the uh, overt sexual pressures there are in some of these videos to get more and more clicks. More, They're not ready. They're not ready uh, no. for the social media, right? They they still need to be in a protected environment. So if uh, people are interested, uh, please go to GoodTube Kids and you can see uh, there's a row there of videos, uh, one from each of the major networks that shows the uh, drag culture agenda that's being pressed on kids. And then there's a row that shows some of the videos they can find on GoodTube Kids. And if people subscribe now, we're just at the ground floor of this. You know, the the sky is the limit. And uh, I do feel like this is a calling God's place to my life. And I pray that I can use 
every breath I have left on this earth to do as much good as I can to serve the Lord, serve families and serve their children, because I'm doing it as much for my own son as I am for yours, right? For your kids. If there's enough people, I'll kind of finish with this. There's enough people focusing on the leadership and the uh, politics uh, of today. But if we don't anchor our children in truth and goodness, we won't have a country to lead, right? There, there'll right. be there's nobody to raise up to fix it. So we need to focus our attention uh, on our youth, um, and this is one way I feel I can contribute. It's so it's so important. I had a guy reach out to me on Twitter the other day, and he said, "Kyle, like I'm so scared about the way the world looks right now, and I don't think I want to have children. I'm concerned about bringing children into this world." And my statement was, uh, "Hurry up and meet somebody. Go get married." And have some children because if you don't have any skin in the game why why would you care about what happens in the world it doesn't matter yeah. you're transient you're going to be leaving it's literally the only reason for making the world better is because our children are living in it and we know that the next generation has to do it it's your biological imperative but also it's our calling i think uh as people of faith to be able to propagate that faith and continue mm -hmm. living in it until until we're not here anymore so if you're not out there doing the right thing and you know meet somebody you love and take good care of them and do the things that they're called traditional values but it's so funny it's not traditional it's all of humanity except for the last 15 minutes has been on the same page that you go out, you find a, right. a, a mate, you pair bond with that mate and you raise a child or 10, you know, and bring them up so that they carry on the values that you've tried to put out there. And uh, we're all kind of in the, the marketplace of ideas is also fought by who's also going to have the next generation of those ideas. So it's so important sure. that we do this. Um, I'm really grateful that you spent uh, what, two, two and a half hours sitting with us, Chris. So thanks Thank so you. much for, uh, for sitting down there. We're going to put the links below. Um, Phil's going to give us a readout. I think he has one of our five-star reviews and maybe some other points he wants to hit. And then uh, we'll wrap this sucker up. Yeah. Like Kyle said, we're going to have the link to good tube kids in the description box below. So go check out what Chris is doing. It's at goodtubekids.com. Parents click here, kids click here. We've also got a give, send, go update. Someone donated very generously, Kyle. Dear Mr. Seraphin, the work you are doing is invaluable. The sacrifice you and your family have made is righteous. The corrupt cannot stand up to the just because truth will always protect and prevail. God bless you and yours. Sincerely, sincerely rather, Glenn Deal and family. Thank you, Glenn, for that very generous donation to the Suspendables. And as far as five-star reviews go, everybody go and give the Kyle Seraphin Show a five-star review. This helps us move up the charts so that more people can find Kyle and the content that you can only find here on this show. Carolina Girl writing, American Hero. Kyle is an American hero. Love his show and such a great attitude. He explains things in an excellent way for all to understand. Such a good man who is truly God, family, country. Thank you, Carolina Girl, for those kind words. And finally, everybody go check out thekyleseraphinshow.com where you can get all your Suspendals merch. I will say that mine is taking a while to arrive. So if you do want to take a chance on this, they seem to be back ordered, so please be patient. <laughs> or, the or the deep out. state has us. The deep state's holding on to our gear. They're not letting people have their suspendable merch. Chris, we uh, created a T-shirt that says "The Suspendables" with an American flag behind it. Uh, it. It's kind of a silly brand that we came up with to to represent uh, anybody who could be just suspendable, which is to say, you're willing to get up and tell that that ASAC what's wrong. And mm -hmm. the further along that you're willing to push that envelope and tell people what's wrong, the more likely yeah. it is that you're going to cross a line. 
yeah, you're going to get suspended, which is exactly like technically they, they still think I'm an employee, which is amazing. I actually just got my W-2 from the Bureau. I made $39,000 as an FBI agent last year. That's how much uh, I did not spend time. And most of that was my leave that they burned up on me. So not not a great situation, but it is what it is. We got to uh, fight the fight where we're at. We got to, uh, you know, take the path that God puts us on. And I don't know where this is leading, but just like you, we're off in the brave new world. Uh, I feel like we're on a similar mission together, trying to right the wrongs and um, mm-hmm. I don't know who wins at the end, but, uh, I've got pretty good faith that it comes out. Okay. So I know you do as well. I really do appreciate yes, you sitting and talking to us. We'll do this again. I want an update as your, as your good two kids gets going. And, um, thanks everybody for listening to the Kyle Sheriff and show. We do appreciate your time and, uh, we will catch you again later on this week. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Seraphin show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and truth at Kyle Seraphin.